Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Night, dawn, day, and land of the dead. Welcome to a night of total terror. <laughs> Night of the living dead, the dead who live on living flesh, the dead whose haunted souls hunt the living, the living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. Night of the living dead. Our adventure in fear. An experience in shock more shattering than your strangest nightmare. Night of the living dead. This is extraordinary. I had literally never heard this trailer before. Night of the living dead. A night with the dead who cannot die. A night of total terror. Night. Of the living dead. I see you shiver with anticipation. Can we all just agree that this is how we're going to say the name of this film all collectively from now on? It's just the best. Night of the Living Dead. This was a thank you show made especially for a generous donator named Inners Clatworthy. It was recorded late 2016 before George A. Romero had passed. This is a show about George Romero's Zombie Quad, which is our white zombie cover band. Namely, the first four films of his Living Dead series, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, and Land of the Dead. With us, rejoining the show, are Brendan Agnew, a.k.a. Jack Burton. Not gone in the morning this time. Karu Nagisa. Hey there. And, and Debbie Morse. Hello. And hello to Sharon. Hello. This is a bunch of only very loosely connected films released over a 37-year period from 1968 to 2005. Watched in a row, they document the progression of a zombie outbreak as it goes from a Class 1 to a Class 4. Once again, as with Resident Evil, consult our Zombie Survival Guide by Max Brooks episode for more detail on the classifications. But the short of it is, it starts in a small town and eventually apparently... Oh, hang on. So, Jack, did you start listening... Oh, sorry, Brendan, did you start listening to those? I did. I, I'd heard the World War Z uh, podcast a few years back, close mm-hmm. to the time I think you guys actually made it, and I've been listening to the Zombie Survival Guide one over the last couple days. So you got your sensible zombie hunting head on, like, straight away. You know not to go for the chainsaw. I have many swords in my house and bludgeoning weapons, specifically in the back of my mind going, you know, just in case, this could work. <laughs> Ah, but like he even warns in the book, is it a is it a battle ready sword or is it just an ornamental sword? Oh, I do stage combat, so all of my swords that I would be using for this would be battle ready. Okay, so zombie swords 
at the ready. Uh, the short of it is, uh, with uh, Night of the Living Dead, uh, the zombie outbreak starts in a small town and eventually, by Land of the Dead, apparently according to the spurious fan continuity over a period of only five years, question mark, because that might be contradicted in certain things said in Land of the Dead, spreads to the whole world until the human race is, according to Land of the Dead, according to Day of the Dead, outnumbered by 40,000 to one. Oof. <clears throat> yeah. Now, there are two remaining films in the time of this recording, The Diary of the Dead and Survival of the Dead. And uh, Romero has actually pledged to do a couple more before he goes and becomes a zombie himself. Oh, that hurts now. Uh, sorry, George. I'm also saddened that we'll never get to see those other films he was thinking about. Uh, but there are three very good reasons why we're not including them. One, they jump back to the beginning of the outbreak, thus breaking the progression chain. Two, they're cheap and not very good, and we were released during the era of maximum zombie saturation, so made zero cultural impact, thus giving us nothing to talk about. And three, four of these movies are more than enough for one sprawling show. Oh, yes. Oh. Are you saying that we have quite enough to chew on as it is? We do. Oh. <laughs> yep, nope. I've got no puns regarding rotting flesh. Well, let's just consume that one and move on. <laughs> now, this is a commissioned show, technically, because uh, a fellow named Innes Clatworthy uh, donated very, very generously, completely out of the blue, didn't ask for anything in return, and I just got in touch and said, hey, is there anything we can do to make you happy, just to, to like, as a, as a thank you? And uh, he said, uh, uh, I don't have recall you ever having done the Indiana Jones movies, or am I just forgetting them? If so, they would be at the top of the list, all four of them. Uh, no, curtailing at the Last Crusade. That's a bit greedy, though. If Surf so is a single film uh, rather than a quadrology, then it would be George Ro- a George Romero movie. Not sure which one yet. Scanning across my DVDs just now, I see you've ticked off all the major movies that I love, so I'm a bit short on options. My response was, I actually say on the Congo episode I, that I just finished editing uh, that nobody could pay us or should pay us for Indiana Jones. We're totally doing them. They will be the centerpiece of our Spielberg season in 2018. We'll be doing shows on each of them, plus shows on some of our favorite other Spielberg films, including E.T. and Jaws. But we could do Romero's four good dead movies and ignore those other ones all in one show. That's definitely something we we would have been hesitant to do otherwise. But with Mr. Clatworthy helping us out, it's like, let's just do this thing. And uh, so, yeah, that this is uh, this one's up for you, sir. And thank you very, very much. And uh, if uh, folks, if you want to actually commission a show, it will cost you the princely sum of one hundred and fifty dollars. And get in touch with us first, though, because we might already be doing it. Thank you, Ennis. Hope we're entertaining. Now, we're going to start with the original nineteen sixty-eight movie that pretty much redefined the zombie survival in the West: Night of the Living Dead. I put, before I started watching them, so Night of the Living Dead's the one that's filmed mostly in the afternoon, Dawn of the Dead's the one that's filmed mostly at night, Day of the Dead's the one that's mostly underground, and Land of the Dead is the one that takes place in a very small area. But that's not necessarily true, is it? There's there's lots of, like, I think no. that there's bits in Night of the Living Dead where it goes from the dead of night to complete pitch dark to them driving around a truck uh, at dusk. And then back to darkness again. So it's it's what you could do with uh, $114,000 this film cost originally. And it made... Wow. wow. Anyone? That I missed. No, how much did it make? $12 million. Oh, wow. I'm going to go ahead and guess that through rescreenings, it's probably made a bit more than that over the years. Yeah. But yeah. Well, I know they've been having... They, to this day, still have trouble because the distributors kept trying to claim 
it, and it's also technically in the public domain because they forgot to put the copyright notice on it. Oh, seriously? So that means that anyone yeah. can technically remake Night of the Living Dead? Yeah. Someone Tom Savini already did in 1990. Oh, nice. Someone asked, uh, are we going to do any of the remakes, I mean, including Zack Snyder's uh, Dawn of the Dead? Um, and I said, no, four is enough. Uh, so is it, like, is there any reason why more people haven't remade Night of the Living Dead? I don't know. Uh, maybe they assume that it's owned. And like I said, there have been rights issues. Um, Romero lost a lot of money on this one because of the distributor contract. And the distributors basically took most of the money mm. for nights. But apparently in 1968 at the time, you had to put the copyright notice on something. Otherwise, it was assumed to be in the public domain. Yeah. So technically, it is in the public domain because they forgot to put the copyright notice in the credits. <laughs> I saw a fantastic video on YouTube, the Night of the Living Dead Horrors of Copyright by Captain Christian, who's one of my favorite video producers. From the sounds of it, the company that was distributing Night of the Living Dead for Romero suggested that he change his original title, Night of the Flesh Eaters, to Night of the Living Dead so that it wasn't confused with another film simply entitled Flesh Eaters. But after they changed all the posters and the artwork and the graphics and the title card, they forgot to put the copyright on. Had they not done that, the zombie as we know it now, the ghoul, the shambling flesh-eater talked about by Max Brooks and seen in every zombie film since this, every zombie video game, Resident Evil, every comic, Walking Dead, every TV show, again Walking Dead, would be the intellectual property of Romero. And that wouldn't even go into the public domain until 2024, at which point, as Captain Christian points out, the Mickey Mouse effect probably would have kept it in perpetuity. In other words, all modern zombie culture stems from this one film and the elaborations and fleshing out of the zombies in Dawn of the Dead. Like I said, about the maximum saturation, you cannot move for shitty cheap zombie films right now. And I don't know if you're familiar with the output on Steam Greenlight, but you also can't move for the most shitty of zombie video games. I don't think there's ever going to be a period where it's like, we just haven't had a zombie film in, in ages. Mm. I think technically speaking, there's an awful lot of, of um, semi-amateur zombie films out there that practically are remakes of Night of the Living mm, Dead in mm. the sense that they couldn't come up with anything more inventive than to follow that yeah. uh, storyline. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. It uh, you know, starts with a, a zombie encounter, then moves quickly to a house which gets barricaded. Then it's about sort of like home defence and then the zombies break in at the end everyone gets chewed on except for one guy and then there's kind of a fuck you ending but we'll we'll come to that in a minute yeah. well, uh, I suspect that um, say 10 years maybe 20 um, zombies will die down something else will come up in popularity like vampires have kind of peaked and then kind of before zombies vampires were the big yeah, thing the early 2000s remember the vampire craze yeah mm. so i suspect there will come a time when you won't be getting a million shitty zombie movies all of the time see with netflix uh, you know basically buying small movies now this is the place to go to now that you know this is the new version of the sci-fi channel so if you've got a small film and it's so easy to make. There's a I've mentioned this before. There was a zombie movie called Colin, which cost like forty five quid to make, 
and it it, look, it looks it when you actually watch the damn thing. But um, <laughs> oh god, it's because it's so cheap and easy to make a zombie film. People do, and because people are fascinated yeah. with zombie films, just it, it's the whole at the moment. It's it's kind of the um, uh, the Google whack remix culture of zomb- Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> oh, that's vampires. Um, yeah. uh, Cockneys versus zombies, and just like that. anything can have and zombies added to it. But I um, it's a Facebook meme. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. probably has. Also, I think the um, the idea that people who are young and creative and just trying to work out for themselves what they can do when it comes to mm. filmmaking and the uh, skills and talents that are connected therewith, zombies are a pretty good way of experimenting with that. Mm. I know um, I got rather into the idea of doing um, special effects makeup when I was about probably about. 13. It's like Super 8. And yeah, and I, I so used to sit Lamb there with a, a palette of eyeshadows basically trying to work out how dead I could make my skin look. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I did a mean bruise. I do not, unfortunately, no. But, um, but yeah, some of it was. My mum had this amazing olive that just made bruises look so perfect. So, um, if anyone who's roughly our age, sort of mid, mid to late thirties, will probably, if they went to any kind of film school, probably may have contributed to a gangster film. When the, you know, when you're when you're young, you can make a gangster film, and just everyone could. If you're British, everyone talks like angry and Cockney, and and you talk about bank yeah. robbery and stuff. Which as a as a just team, Vinnie Jones. Yeah, yeah. That that was what we were doing in the late nineties, early two thousands. Mm. Except I, the kids who actually lived in London who were making Pride and Prejudice ripoffs. I'm sure they were. <laughs> Pride and Prejudice and Cockneys. <laughs> Darcy, you've taken the piss. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Bennett, Mr. you Bingley. muppet. <laughs> right. Okay, so um, Night of the Living Dead. Pretty much essential viewing, purely for the cultural impact this has had, just for its historical importance, even besides the unsettling things that happen in it. You know, it's, it's a seminal work of zombie fiction. Like, it, there's nothing fresh about it when you watch it, if you've watched a whole bunch of other zombie films. But it is kind of like laying down the basics. There are two reasons I think are absolutely worth seeing this for. Mm-hmm. One of them is the cinematography, which is brilliant and beautiful and really contributes to the atmosphere. And the other is Dwayne Jones' Ben, who mm. is really phenomenal in this movie. Just His acting is far and away better than kind of almost anybody else in the cast which is a cast cobbled together of kind of anybody they had available. Mm. I was going to say part of the reason for that though is that everybody else is, is terrible. So awful. Oh my god. Yeah. That all he had to do was be halfway mm. professional and he automatically outstripped everybody else around him. Pretty yeah, he was the only one who I think actually auditioned for the parts. Like Carl Hardman was a co-producer and like five other jobs on there. He was the guy who played Harry. Marilyn Eastman was in the makeup department. Um, the girl who played Judy Judith Riddler or Ridley was their secretary, Eastman Hardman's secretary. Oh, God, they're lucky they didn't end up with the room. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> no, Dwayne Jones actually replaced somebody else who was supposed to play Ben, and Jones just did it better. Oh, hi, Ben. Yeah. Also, <laughs> one thing I noticed was that Romero was really bad at introducing his characters. Oh, yeah. Ben's name is only mentioned once, and it's in passing through a wall an hour into the film. Hmm. I think. I don't even know how Tom knew his name. 
I think most people uh, uh, probably refer to him silently in their heads as the competent black guy, uh, which yeah, is a much. recurring trope throughout the uh, the Dead series. And uh, actually, in '68, that's a fairly like uh, they, you know they were still this still has the tropes of '50s B movies about it, where um, it would be sort of very much Brad and Janet from Rocky Horror would turn up, and and they would be exactly as white bread as you'd imagine. So it feels like that, but then Johnny gets killed immediately and immediately enter Ben, and it's like, no, this is going to be a slightly different kind of 50s B-movie, and now it's because we're actually in the 60s. Well, it's a common thread if you look at all of the, the four of the dead movies that he made, is that you've got Ben and then Peter, and even in Day of the Dead, you've got the helicopter pilot who's one of the more competent and more likable characters, mm-hmm. and then to kind of flip things around in Land of the Dead, the hero zombie mm. is Big Daddy. Is, a black yeah. man, is Big Daddy, mm. who is who is portrayed in a very sort of sympathetic light throughout the film. And it's yeah. that's one of the things that watching these movies kind of all in a row is, is an interesting thing to look out for. Uh, to, to follow on uh, Kauru's point, I would say another reason to look at, at specifically Night of the Living Dead is um, because of the cultural references that you mentioned. Um, I mean, for one thing, uh, the the movie that they're making in super eight mm. half the jokes um are how kind of rough the kid actors are yeah. and it feels very deliberately in line with some of the performances in uh night of the living dead it's also free to watch on amazon prime in a fairly decent digital restoration so it's not going to cost you anything if you've got that mm. oh it's very inexpensive on dvd as well and yeah yeah so i mean but it's the actual process of watching the film um the the thing that's jarring by today's standard is that the zombies don't move or look or aren't made up like we would expect a zombie to look, especially when you see land. They're yeah. they're basically just people with like powdered faces, just sort of blundering around um, without that kind of really slow, deliberate "I'm dead" thing. They just seem to be agitated, and um, their eyes focus a lot more often. Mm. And I mean, the guy at the beginning who kills Johnny by smashing his head against a grave is that like you would imagine he'd he'd start feeding straight away, but then he immediately gets up and goes for Barbara, and then starts trying to get into her car. And you're like, oh god, well it's okay. He's outside the car. He picks up a big stone. And you're like, whoa, this is a different yeah. kind of zombie. These these are more these are smarter. They're tool users. Mm. That's not something you expect out of a zombie these days. Mm. But so maybe that is yeah. something slightly more fresh. And yeah. he's been doing it since the first movie. Every single of his of the dead movies mm. has zombies using tools at some point. Even in Dawn of the mm. Dead, they actually climb ladders as well. Not all of them, and not all of the time. But yeah, there's yeah. there's different gradations of uh, cunning. Also, as a, a species, they become over time smarter and they learn and they uh, they remember and they by remember. land <laughs> um, by oh, land girl. it's almost as if um, parts of their old lives are starting to come back to them even if they can't mm. um, enact it perfectly. Oh, that's and they kind see of that done in Bub. that's done in Dawn yeah. as well. That, that, yeah. the, the, the yeah. staggering around them all is it, definitely that that that's seated there. Mm. Yeah, but um, plus it, it reminds me of that one X Files episode where they're going, where uh, Mulder and Scully are um, technical consultants on a zombie film, and Mulder is expressing how you know if zombies had zombies are usually killed before they have the time to really kind of adapt to what they are, hmm. give them time, and they would ballroom dance. <laughs> and it ends with zombies ballroom dancing. 
so yeah, I mean, a, a lot. They, they kind of reminded me a bit more of. Do you, anyone seen the crazies? Not no, yet. But it's on our list, but we haven't seen it yet. Well, it's kind of like a, a an acceptable nineteen sixties version of the infected in um, uh, twenty eight days later, but just not absolutely bone chillingly terrifying like Danny Balls infected. Yeah. Well, and I would comment that the makeup in Night and to some degree all four of these movies is more unsettling because it's not what we're expecting. Mm. Yeah. The first one, Marilyn Eastman was doing the makeup and she just wanted to take a feature of the actor's face and exaggerate it. And then Tom Savini took over makeup for the rest of them. Or I think Greg Nicotero did uh, land. Yeah. Uh, But uh, yeah, he took over. And Dawn of the Dead was him trying to figure out how to replicate that in color. Hmm. And that's why they all look blue. Uh, and then he say, finally hit it. Yeah. The the and, uh, shift from black and white to color. I assumed that was basically why it suddenly got awfully a lot more gory because all of a sudden it's like, hey, we can do the blood in red. Yeah, there's there's actually yeah. not that much that's really like sickening in the in the first one. There's one moment that's like, whoa! I think you all know which moment I'm talking about. Oh yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But uh, I'm sickened by knowing what they're actually eating. Yeah. Oh, what are they eating? Was it like handfuls of offal or something? No, it was ham covered in chocolate sauce. Oh, that's not too bad. It it sounds disgusting, but yeah, no, that's what the actors were eating. I'd rather eat ham covered in chocolate sauce than offal, because, I mean, in uh, in, in (laughs) Dawn of the Dead, they're just chowing down on... Oh, it's disgusting. Oh, yeah, it is. Uh, but uh, yeah, so so it's relatively bloodless. The zombies stagger around quite fast. It gets for, it goes from being afternoon to night ish, uh, soon ish. I mean, the the big problem for me with uh, Night of the Living Dead is that you spend way too much time with Barbara, who is awful. She uh, she goes from the sort of like being listless at the graveside, um, and then her brother gets killed, and then she pretty much goes into catatonia for the rest of the movie. The only time she ever snaps out of it is is to absolutely freak out in an unconvincing way and just overblow the whole thing. She's horrible to watch. I mean, the, the, the fact that it then shifts to Ben once we get to the house is a mercy for this film because she literally could not possibly carry a movie like this. She's she's one of those. Um, I believe they're called dinner in a zombie film. <laughs> and it takes a, a spectacular amount of time to actually get consumed. That's the unfortunate thing about Barbara as a character and, and something that Romero sort of addresses in the text of his characters progressively as you go through Dawn and especially Day in the mm-hmm. way he handles his female characters later on. Mm-hmm. It's also, if you watch the remake, um, Night of the Living Dead, um, he does a complete 180 um, with that character. Oh, they, right. they deliberately, yeah, they deliberately address Barbara. I can't remember if it's Barbara or just a a Barbara like character. If she had the same name, but she is completely different in the remake and and very much the the equal to Ben as a competent survivor. Mm. She was supposed to be that in the original, but Romero liked her playing catatonic better. Just her her performance. Well, mm. and I. I it's not a great performance, I agree, but I I saw it a little bit differently um, in watching it because if you take it as she's turning into a zombie herself, not not literally, but she's becoming less and less human as the movie goes on. Mm-hmm. 
you see her more and more becoming more and more catatonic. And at one point, and I want to say it was someone lit a fire. I think I think it was when she lit the match for the cigarette. Yeah, for uh, the cigarette. Yeah. Uh, the, Helen the, did. Yeah, Helen. Thank you. Yeah. Um, the names all kind of run together in my mind a little bit on these. Uh, but when Helen lights a cigarette and Barbara just jumps and it's you, it reminds you of the point that in that movie you're seeing that these zombies are afraid of fire. Hmm. And so it's like, it's an interesting parallel to what's outside. You've got someone in here who's, you know, where, where I guess, where's the line of humanity? Hmm. So it, it made it a little more interesting her her performance for me i think that underlines um a bit one of what seems to be one of the main themes that runs through all of them um which is the the idea that the difference between the humanity of the people and the I, I don't have a better word for it, so I'm going to have to say humanity of the zombies. Um, there, there are parallels there. Um, the idea that how the, the humans start to react to each other becomes, in some cases, indistinguishable from how the zombies are acting. Grabbing and, and attacking and biting and, and savaging. And things like you've got the um, the news reports that keep coming back to this idea of, you know, we have to be incredibly logical about this and we have to be really rational about it and oh. not... Yeah. yeah. Um, well, no, they, they um, somebody says it in Night as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, um, Dr. Grimes, absolutely. which I believe Rick Grimes is a reference to. That's right. And then it resurfaces again in um, in Day as well. But they keep coming back to this idea that, that basically you've got the savage and you've got the incredibly rational and logical and ultimately humanity is actually somewhere in the middle of those two. And they draw characters, including the zombies, who go to the extremes and that's where they're trying to to make the comparisons. And I think by having Barbara go into that catatonic state and I saw a lot of her behaviour there as being very um, uh, regressive because you've got that bit at the beginning where she's talking to Johnny in the graveyard and he makes a reference to something that happened when they were children and she kind of goes into a child state and then she does that again later and stays there. Mm-hmm. One of Romero's running themes is absolutely what you're, what you're talking about there, Sharon, is, is how different are we from the zombies, how we treat each other versus how the zombies treat each other. Um, compares um, which land of the dead really sort of drives home with night of the living dead it's almost like a a surprise stinger of oh shit we're actually in some ways way worse with the you know last few minutes of the movie and then those still shots of ben and everyone else being put on the pyre Mm. yeah um one thing that um so originally ben was not written specifically as an african-american character uh, but as the movie went on, there's still a lot of parallels to racism. One thing that jumps to mind is there's a scene where it literally shows the zombies vandalizing Ben's car for no reason, apparently. And that's another thing. It's the zombies are committing vandalism instead of just kind of mindlessly wandering about. They are, in many ways, actively more malicious than they would be in The Walking Dead or 28 Days Later or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's um, a, a look at the the idea that if you take away the basic 
human restrictions of society, people will act like that. Because there are there are people who tend to think that everybody would act like that if there were no laws holding us back. Or God. Yeah. Or something, something external <laughs> yeah. that stops us from basically behaving like zombie vandals. I think that's one of the big appeals of certain aspects of zombie fiction to a certain audience is is the the amount of uh, I guess power, fantasy, and freedom that you get from a world without laws where you have to enact your own justice and protection, and you know people thinking that they would be however prepared for that or however freed from certain societal restraints by that situation. Rather than but, dinner. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> Which it's, is what it would be. Yeah. It's, it's a power fantasy to be able to imagine yourself in a world where you're able to uh, really do everything that you wanted to do. And basically a lot of people really do want to feel like a hero because their regular life is so workaday. Mm. The problem is, though, that for them to be a hero... Um, people around them have to be victims because there has yeah. to be people there for them to save. And one of the uh, the character interactions that I found really interesting was uh, between Ben and Cooper when they're arguing about basically where they're going to stay and um, Judy and Tom are kind of being very objective about it well it makes more sense for us to be up here this is where the radio is this is where the food is and cooper is basically like completely cutting off his nose to spite his face he would rather be down in the basement trapped with no resources whatsoever than take instruction from ben if everyone had just gone down to the basement and bolted the door they would have survived the night uh, no Probably not necessarily the night, but, because well, the little girl had... had already been bitten uh-huh. They'd have been locked down there yeah. with her. But either would way, would they have survived the deputies the next morning? Uh, well, I suppose the deputies could be like, sort of like pounding on the door. Anyone in there? Yes, please don't shoot us. <laughs> yeah, all they would have had to, all Ben would have had to have done was called out. <laughs> mm. But or, he wasn't sure they weren't zombies either. I think uh, fair. He didn't know whether they were uh, people or not. At least not at that distance. Yeah. One of the uh, best uh, interpretations I've seen of zombies, because uh, they can be taken in any number of ways, uh, was uh, Mike Rugnander on the Idea Channel. I think I've mentioned this on the uh, on one of our zombie episodes. Um, equated them to technology. Uh, now, as far as I'm concerned, it could it could be even more simplified as that zombies are the dead end waiting at the end of our technological advancement when we get to a certain point culturally where we can't we can go no further because of our own self-destructiveness we will eat each other uh and that would be why everyone in the romero film seems to regress and this is throughout zombie movie culture to a hunter-gatherer um uh, like nomadic tribe mentality through the bones of an advanced society. So, you know, they, they, we've got our uh, technological know-how, we've got our modern-day um, uh, understanding of the world, but we really only survive if we're relying on survival instincts. Mm. That that will be where the f- power fantasy lies. It's from it's going back to the whole we hunted the mammoth thing, mm. uh, but with ah. these these creatures out there all trying to prey on us from the darkness... It's the the mall is just a giant cave. Mm. But then you get the progression from that in Land of the Dead, 
Um, and there's a little bit of that in The Walking Dead as well, where the you, you're moving from that hunter-gatherer state to an early agrarian state where there is You've one guy up, yeah. who somehow manages to get hold of all the land and he's controlling the people who are farming that land for him or accumulating resources for him. Hmm. And then the power shifts from being in the individual and their ability to hunt and defend themselves and their immediate family to whoever it is has somehow convinced the most people around them to do what they say. Hmm. The What's the saying? Uh, we're nine meals away from savagery or something. So I, I can't remember the exact quote. I think it's but just three. Is it three? Yeah. I believe it was Arnold Rimmer who said that. But actually, Debbie was right. In 1906, Alfred Henry Lewis stated there are only nine meals between mankind and anarchy. So for some reason, that got divided by three in Red Dwarf. This is absolutely the language of New Century, since the, um, the, the it required the remapping of the world and the shattering and then pulling back together of uh, the yeah. of, of culture. The you know, that power fantasy that you talked about gets. Uh, squashed with the rather more mature no we've got to bring some rules out there because otherwise we're not going to survive this and it's about the push pull of people wanting to do their own thing and having the liberty for that uh, with the uh, rationality of no we've got to work together or we're all going to die and so it's unity versus uh, independence I think though yeah. the one of the significant differences there is that with New Century because it is set in what is essentially a frontier America anyway they're not that far from the wilderness when they start whereas um, in the Living Dead movies particularly by the time you get to land the people could deal with Kaufman and his bullshit very easily by grabbing him and throwing him out there to be eaten. Mm. Um, yeah. Whereas in New but Century... they want to be presided over by a tyrant. Ex- well, they want that, that illusion of security that comes with being presided over by a tyrant. Hint, hint, listen. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, in New Century, that illusion of security, if you live out in the, in, on the wilds... You, you can't maintain an illusion of security. Security is you and a big stick. Hmm. So it's you and a big stick whether there's a Wendigo there or not. Hmm. And that yeah, no, makes... Nobody has the option to throw Arlington to the Wendigos yeah. for the most part. Well, I, mean, I mean, they could, but what difference well, yeah. would it actually make? They'd still have to deal with the individual Wendigos in exactly the same way that they were doing yesterday. Sure. Uh, well, that's one of the ways I, I appreciate that Romero makes each of his stories very much a product of his time and how he's addressing the the current society, even though they have kind of this this Marvel Comics slipping timeline of mm-hmm. taking place over, quote-unquote, five to... Yeah, five, five years, years, my ass. <laughs> yeah, no. It's always been about five years ago. The cap was unfrozen, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. But <laughs> but with, with Night of the Living Dead, it's very much the, the suburban culture of, you know, it's looking at the nuclear family, it's looking at um, the place of people of color in society because of, of how, you know, of how this white man reacts to being commanded by a black man. Then the 70s very much addresses consumer culture. The 80s is very much about militaristic, you know, Reaganish paranoia. And 2005, I mean, it's, it's uh, class warfare. Said, Donald Trump. It's class warfare. It's Donald <laughs> yeah. Trump. Um... Yeah, I'd, uh, I, I, I've always uh, kind of liked the idea that Night of the Living Dead very much um, 
represents society rising up against a house with a black man and a white woman in it. Mm. Yes, that mm. that did occur to me at one point. I think it was when um, Ben says something about um, Barbara coming upstairs with him so that people can see them from the window or something like that. Mm. If they see us together, uh, dot, dot, dot. And it it just yeah. it it did occur to me that that may have been the um, uh, the implication there. But there's interestingly enough there are there's two elements of Night of the Living Dead that I really really liked, and it's the beginning and the end. Mm. And the beginning is to do with the music. There's something about um, black and white films for me that that somehow sets the visuals and the audio apart. And it may be because of like really old black and white movies where you have your your uh, film and then your title cards for whatever it was that people were saying. Mm. But the, the fact that if you tune out the music at the start, you've got the car coming up over the hill and driving into the cemetery and, and you know, the, the two of them sitting in the car and having the conversation, that could be anything. This it doesn't have to be a horror movie. It could be an action. It could be a political thriller. It could be a romantic comedy. It could be anything. But the music is what absolutely delineates from beat one of this movie where it's going. It's creepy. It's foreboding. There's this f- sense of dread that floods those opening frames. Yeah, which is amazing considering that the music for the first couple of these films was basically stock music that they rummaged through a library and picked stuff. <laughs> Not, I don't. Th- I think Day of the Dead was the first one where they actually had music written for the movie. Mm. Well, they um, had Dario Argento um, doing stuff with the goblins for Dawn of the Dead, but I don't know how much of it was was from their catalog versus yeah. their. Uh, well, I know that in Dawn of the Dead they use uh, what's it, they use the opening credits from Monty Python and the Holy Grail at one point. <laughs> yes, I, I said that, and you were like, I don't recognize the music. Yeah. And then they name check it with a slightly different remix of that very tune in Day of the Dead as well. It was like, Argento running into a goblin nest, kissing a yeah. goblin, goblin vomit, catch him in bed with a goblin. Something about moose bites. <laughs> yeah, I said I said to show a moose once bit my sister, and you were like, oh. <laughs> Anyhow, yeah, and the ending, uh, and the yeah, the end. It was specifically the fact that there's a um, kind of a freeze frame moment where it feels very Animal Farm, as in they looked from the zombies and to the humans <laughs> and, and couldn't, couldn't see which were the monsters. Could no longer tell the difference. Um, which I thought was... What if we are the monsters? It's Yeah, but it's, <laughs> it's short enough and abrupt enough that it felt quite subtle. Um, and I don't know, I just appreciated the fact that it would have been easy to really grind home that idea. That's true. They never comment. They never say anything about, about oh, this guy was still alive. That's never, it's just boom, shoot, and boom, done. Mm. Yeah. And you never really get any explanation of why they've reacted like that. You never get any anybody trying to justify their behavior or even them acknowledging that Ben was not a zombie. Do you think that this film would have had the impact uh, if, if uh, at the very, very end, Ben had been almost killed, 
but then just sort of managed to walk away from the situation like you know a bunch of uh, white ass hillbillies all stare at him as he walks out and he's just like no you don't even want to know what happened there last night uh, and then just uh, walks off into the sunset the cowboy hero would that have been a more impactful ending or, or would that have just generally cheapened the whole thing I don't I think, think it would have. I mean, I think this this was what the same year that Martin Luther King was assassinated. Yeah, yeah. I think it was like three months later it came out. So it had to be bone chilling. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the, also the other bit that we uh, we sort of alluded to earlier is when the mum goes down to the basement and, and looks at the kid from behind and is like, "Oh, small child who's definitely not a zombie now." How's it going? And the kid turns around and goes, I got this trowel. And the mum falls on her back and goes, <gasps> Kid walks towards her with the trowel. Watch out! Watch out! Kid starts to stab her very, very slowly. <gasps> Get up! <laughs> yeah, she didn't even try to defend herself. No, uh, not even. Like, Is it technically my dead family if they're undead? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I think she's like she's paralyzed with horror that her daughter is now a zombie, but just she falls to pieces in a way that we've seen the whole way through the movie. But then, like, like they could think like have her stabbed and then that's it. But the actual duration of the child killing her mother with a trowel goes on for. Ever are they trying to? Were they trying to replicate the shower scene in Psycho? Maybe because he just goes. Because yeah. there is a lot of we want to be Hitchcock in this. It's oh yes. yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it yeah. just that it's it's painful to watch. Uh, that, but like I said, there's there, that part of me that like watches every horror movie where people behave in a stupid way and like seem to abjectly refuse to defend themselves or mm. behave in a way that allows for survival. I'm thinking a skateboard kid here in yes, Land of the Dead. We'll, we'll yeah. get to that. But the the actually you you're absolutely right. And my worst bit in mm. this one in night yeah. is for exactly the same reasons. Well, where it's Barbara the goes scene, charging out No and... no no it's the scene, it's the scene with the truck. Oh yeah. The whole oh, bit the from the agonizing moment where Judy messes everything up <laughs> by not being able to decide whether to go back in the house or get in the truck then getting stuck in the truck and even Ben slaloms from being incredibly practical and capable to dithering to well I mean he is like shooting at a petrol pump to try and turn it on yeah what <laughs> what is that I think you're better than the truck and gas expert. I mean, first of all, how how much of an expert do you have to be to drive a car and fill it up? I mean, Mm. is there a degree in that? Uh, There is. Secondly, apparently he's not that much of an expert because he doesn't realize you have to put the thing, you have to put the pump into the gas tank before hitting hitting the button. How do you not know this truck and gas expert? Uh, Not nearly as much of an expert as we may have been led to believe. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, also, like, was I can identify this, a truck from a distance. Was this Romero <laughs> deliberately trying to make these guys seem stupid? Because when you, um, when you, in the edit, you have to understand when people are watching a film that um, a second feels like a second in their head. So if you cut to a person standing watching a thing happen, then you cut back to the thing happening, and that thing, that sequence takes three seconds. It's going to be three seconds in in people's heads, and that's three seconds that that person staring could have reacted. So that really stretches out the non-reaction of dinner characters. 
I'm going to talk about this more once we get to Land of the Dead, but it's taken Romero several decades now to understand how to write and pace a story. Mm. And mm. that's part of what's wrong with when, when they, we talk about if they're with problems with these movies, it's that the writing and the pacing, he, well, I'll talk, I'll mention it now. He has no concept of the three act structure until land of the dead. Mm-hmm. Basically his zombie movies are introduce zombies People fuck around for half, for most of the movie. <laughs> zombies attack everybody at the end. And Tom Savini comes in and has fun. Accurate. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. And often he has to write his, he has to write these really convoluted ways of putting his people in danger because uh, as sometimes they act amazingly stupid, but then they'll get smart for a while and they'll get too smart. So he has to come up with something that's going to threaten them, and he comes up with these convoluted things like. Judy suddenly figure, forgets how to stay safe, and Tom doesn't know how to fill a gas tank. Mm. Let's just throw gas at the truck. <laughs> and the truck if we're lucky, some of it will go in the tank. Which unfortunately results in <laughs> the average person... Process, right? Yeah, the average person watching is just going to go, You fucking idiot! I'm glad you're dead! Which uh, is is one of the reactions to, to to horror movies, and kind of like then segued into the slasher in the eighties, where you would actively watch on the side of the stalking killer, watching these annoying teenagers being dispatched. That's not my kind of horror film at all. No, I, I like horror films where people are smart and they behave in a resourceful manner, and things still go wrong. Whereas a, hand, a lot of oh, these, sorry. a lot of the duration of all of these movies is people behaving in ways I'm like, just how are you even alive right now? And, and then, it, you know, the, the, the Grim Reaper catches up with them. And then it loses it the it. story impetus because if they're not dead now, they will be in 10 minutes because mm. they'll do something else daft. And if they're idiots now, why am I even following their adventures? It plays into the just world fallacy where we assume that if we make the right decisions, everything will work out mm. and ignore that there are circumstances beyond our control. Yeah. But also that, that that some people fling themselves around the place in a way that is so irresponsible and stupid that it, it defies all reason that they might even think, I'll do this and survive. I'm specifically thinking of a lot of things that happen in Dawn here. Should we, should we move on to Dawn? In 1968... George Romero brought us Night of the Living Dead. It became the classic horror film of its time. Not that room! Not that room! Now, George Romero brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. This situation must be controlled before it's too late. They are multiplying too rapidly. Dawn of the Dead. Meet me on the roof at 9 o'clock. Get out. I don't believe it. We're going to get out in the chopper. We've got to survive. Somebody's got to survive. They kill for one reason. They kill for food. They eat their victims. Imagine, if you will, that something has gone terribly wrong. Shoot it, man. Now, accept the fact that there's no escaping the horrible consequences. George Romero brings back the dead. Night of the Living Dead has ended. Dawn of the Dead is here. We must not be lulled by the concept that these are our family members or our friends. They are not. They will not respond to such emotions. Operator dead. Post abandoned. You may never get out of the room. It's everywhere. 
What the hell is it? Looks like a shopping center, one of those big indoor malls. What are they doing? Why do they come here? Some kind of instinct, memory, what they used to do. This was an important place in their lives. I'm afraid. We have spawned our own savagery. Soon, it will consume us all. It is a horrible, hauntingly accurate vision of the mindless excesses of a society gone mad. They must be destroyed on sight. When there is no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. We are down to the line, folks. We are down to the line. Dawn of the Dead. Okay. Well, Dawn is where he started making it text that the people making the stupidest decisions are also the ones least worthy of our personal investment. <laughs> <laughs> Namely the biker gangs. Yes. Oh, my yeah. God. Indeed. Got a time to check your blood pressure, guy. Although I found it really difficult to, to engage with this one to begin with because... Whereas, at, at least in Night of the Living Dead, you're, the characters that you're supposed to be uh, engaging with and empathising with are regular human beings that before all of this went down, they were just ordinary people in ordinary jobs. Dawn of the Dead opens with a SWAT team full of trained professionals <laughs> who then proceed to act like small ferrets that have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> And get massacred. Okay. Let's imagine that Sharon put little air quotes above every second word of that. A SWAT team who are a team, a bunch of trained professionals. professionals. <laughs> oh dear me! Uh, small quoted though. Ferrets is a, is not. Yeah, they, uh, this has clearly been going on for uh, only a few months. So that woman, where when her husband uh, turns up and he's zombified, and he's right on top of her, and she goes. Sammy or whatever his name is and he goes um nom 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 on her and <laughs> like she's forgiven but like in several years time for land and uh, day no excuse there and yeah, uh, basically I... everything that happens to the idiots at the end of this also notice the police brutality at the beginning where you have somebody kicking in doors and killing anybody inside on the off chance they're a zombie. Oh god, yeah. And the fact that this takes place in a barrio. Yeah. yeah. And also the fact that they use tear gas, which is there any indication that it even works on the zombies? No, this no, is the it Battle of Yonkers. It only works on the humans, and then the cops all put on, t- uh, because of the tear gas, they have to put on gas masks, which means that the possibility of them being able to distinguish by sight between zombie and human is reduced to about zero. Yeah. And also visually dehumanizes the humans. Yes. It's important to note while we go through this that George Romero, uh, the, the budget for this was $1.5 million, and they made. Anyone? Lots. 55 million. <gasps> That's a lot. Good grief. Yeah. I know this is the highest grossing one. Oh, yeah. Is, yeah, Don. Uh, this was the first film that... Um, I think this is probably the first big zombie film <laughs> for the West. What were you I've just noticed yeah. that Wikipedia describes it as a significant box office success. Not, this caused the people who work out the multiplier to die from an instant <laughs> orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell am I supposed to... I die. I, my life is complete. <laughs> um, yeah, so- as, far as, as far as the SWAT team goes, they are also trying to get the people out. You know, I, I guess one of them is either a slumlord or a, a ganglord who they're 
they're trying to get out. Um, and so maybe the tear gas was for that. Mm. But it, it does very much make that particular bit seem hauntingly topical right now, mm. given the relations between police and, and you know, communities of color. Yeah. Well, yeah. If, if the idea there is if we flood this place with tear gas, all the humans will leave and then we know that anybody who's left is probably dead, mm-hmm. then fine. But I think we need to have that conversation. Barrow has been grappling with depictions also of black men this entire time, uh, in the sense that sometimes he depicts them well, and sometimes he depicts them poorly, and it's usually in the same character. <laughs> <laughs> now, for example, Ben, Dwayne Jones did not want him to punch uh, Barbara, because he was afraid of how a black man punching a white woman on a screen would look. Yeah, um, I can understand that. And, the issues yeah, I and, have with that scene are legion. <laughs> and Romero was like, no, 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 we want to be hip and edgy, and we're going to keep it in. And he regretted that later in life, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and now we have Peter, who, uh, when he's talking about his uh, family at one point in the movie... Uh, he says he's got two brothers, one's in jail, one's a pro ball player. And I'm like, well, that's the spectrum of black stereotypes. Thank you. <laughs> Oops. What else could black people be other than in prison or ball players? The TV station bit at the beginning of this one, I, I would like to say, I would be fine watching a movie set in a TV station during a zombie outbreak. That is just what do we broadcast to the nation. And a lot of people arguing about the difference between laying down the facts and trying not to scare people. That, in itself, is a fascinating 90-minute movie with zombies clawing at the doors the whole time. And, like, you know, people saying, I've got to get out of here, and just, like, eventually ending up just a few people left. That'd be a great movie, Mm. right away. Plus the fact, if that's set now, you get to emphasise the fact that, okay, the internet's out, Mm. so we're all people have got. Literally, what we put out there, they're going to... That's what they're going to be going on and basing their decisions on. And the responsibility well, that goes with that. In in that particular vein, then um, I would suggest that anyone who was interested in that should check out the um, uh, the zombie books by Mira Grant, mm-hmm. uh, which are basically what you would get if cyber journalists were fighting zombies in a World War Z meets Captain America: The Winter Soldier sort of storyline. Yes. Uh, right, oh God. yes. I'm going to stop this oh, yeah, podcast news. right now. Go read them. <laughs> news Flesh is the series. That's the trilogy. News Flesh, yes. And news it, Flesh. Yes. yes. They're nice. some of my favorite books. Okay. I, I adore them. They are amazing. Sold. And, Sold. And the, beginning, and the beginning of this where they are grappling with, well, how do we keep people watching versus do we give them good information or bad information? You know, these, these centers are overrun. We can't send them there. Well, then what do we keep on to make sure people are watching? That's the sort of thing where Romero doesn't spell it out too blatantly, but he does so enough to make it come across, but also without feeling like you're being bludgeoned with it, which is another thing I think that he sort of grapples with. How much do I just show versus how much do I make sure is coming across as intentional versus accidental? Which, that first scene, I like the idea of that first scene in the TV station, but God, could I not follow any of it? It was complete and utter chaos. Everyone's talking over everyone else. That guy running in doing bunny ears over that one. (laughs) (laughs) It, It, I'm like, I don't care about any of these people. No real main characters emerge from it. There's no narrative through line at all you can't even 
it's an awful scene because you can't make any sense of anything that's going on. That and the scene with the with the cops there at the beginning. Those two things. I'm like, it was half an hour into the movie before I started to be able to really have any sense of what was going on. That's that momentum which we uh, mentioned earlier. Just that, that Romero just doesn't seem to have. It's just a series of yeah. events stacked on each other until the the story happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, say what you will about Snyder's remake is the opening of Dawn of the Dead that he did is is brilliant just as the opening of a movie in terms of establishing setting character and the nature of the virus, just all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. What ends up happening is that a bunch of cops storm a uh, barrio and a pair of the news journalists leave the TV station in a helicopter. Uh, they end up picking up these two cops and then they end up flying to a mall, which is in Pittsburgh. And uh, our friend Lauren uh, lives uh, close to this mall where apparently they do zombie tours in uh, <laughs> um, nowadays. One thing I will say that I really liked about the opening bit is that it demonstrates that they know how the gas pump works. Yes. <laughs> they, they, stopped, they stopped several times and filled up that uh, helicopter. Of course... That meant that I had to watch them stop and fill up a helicopter for 10 minutes at a pop, mm. and I just didn't care. But at least they knew how it worked. Uh, they mentioned the, the uh, TV uh, broadcast that they kill only for food. That feels like a retcon, because there were a couple in uh, of kills in Night of the Living Dead where they appeared to be just killing out of pure spite. Mm. Well, the first one, yeah. He, yeah. he kills Johnny. He, he smacks does not Johnny's head Johnny. and then does he not eat. He goes straight after Barbara, which basically means he's so insane with anger and, and zombie vengeance that he's just going to kill and then kill someone else. <laughs> And that doesn't make any sense. Like, uh, you know, the, the, um, the only reason that if a lion killed a gazelle and then immediately went after a, another gazelle, it would be because he felt like the gazelle was... like Undead already? Un- <laughs> no, he wouldn't. It wouldn't make any sense. There would be two oh, yeah. reasons that a healthy animal would kill... And that's threat or food. Yeah, so basically if another lion started, sni- or a hyena started sniffing around his kill, then he'd go after it and just go, that oh, f- oh, And just basically, actually, you know, he, he would feed, though. That'd be his top priority. I chalked that up to Romero trying Sorry. to um, focus on these are there's still some humanity in these zombies, something that he covers better in day. Mm. But we don't necessarily know what's going on. When they say they only kill for food, I just assume that that's uh, that was misinformation they made a mistake they thought that was true but they were wrong because yeah. one of the things that they look at later in day one of the things that um, that dr logan is investigating is the fact that they although they consume they can't actually digest so it doesn't matter how much they eat they will never satisfy that food urge yeah whatever's keeping them alive is completely separate from their digestive system because it's not actually really serving any nutritional purpose. Yeah, yeah. be it the Nugian ra- ra- radiation or whatnot. Mm. <laughs> the uh, scene where the uh, hillbillies are kicking back and whittling some and then just like taking out the zombies in an entirely relaxed way I think is actually disastrous for the overall tone of the film because it sets the scene of uh, an America that's actually taking the zombie outbreak in their stride. These guys are just like, yep, Gotta go down there and put some bullets in the foreheads of some critters. And they're just like, they're like, this is what we gotta do, and we're just gonna drink some beers, have some fun, say, and get this done. Keg. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's a party day. It's a hunting day. It's it, like the idea of like, there's only a few of us left, or, or like, you know, this is the beginning stages. 
if it was going to start like that and then slowly degrade, then that would be a totally relevant scene. But because there isn't, we don't get to see that we degrading point. But but when we meet the bikers at the end, they're fucking around. So it's the same mentality. It is, yeah. although one of the the best things that Romero does with the the actual four main characters in the mall is show the dangers of complacency. Mm. And I don't. Again, it's one of those intentional versus not intentional things that it's hard to really judge. But you know, with the hillbillies, they're they're obviously thinking they've got it under control. The bikers think that they're invincible because there's a lot of them, and they've never been trapped in a space because they're used to being able to just bike the heck out of somewhere. But even with you know Peter and Raj and Stephen, and they they don't you know Franny, they don't know uh, that they're safe for sure, but they they just start pretending that they are, mm. even though they're still getting, you know, in, in Roger's case, it's kind of more of a psychotic break than anything else. But the dangers of them getting complacent and and then that's what is actually even more of a threat than the zombies themselves is taking the zombies for granted. Well, the fact that they there's a situation where Francine is wheeling Roger around the mall in a wheelbarrow, um, both of them immediately become the most vulnerable people in the the context of that situation. And I think you're right about there being um, possibly a little bit of a, a warning note there about how uh, normalising your situation allows you to let down your guard, which puts you at risk. But with the hillbillies, I know what Alex means, There is there aren't really any consequences of that. Mm-hmm. There aren't. Not. It's definitely not for them. Mm. No one. No one in this movie ever. I. I can't. If anyone else can think of one, please speak up. But never did I see anyone in this movie that had a realistic emotional reaction to anything going on. Bingo. That's one of the major reasons I do not like and have never liked Dawn of the Dead. It never felt real. It never felt relevant. And I can understand why people would adore this one and consider it to be a sacred cow. I've written a list of ten far better zombie films. We'll get to that at the end because it's a nice little uh, reading list for folks. But um, the fact that nobody ever seems to... There's a, there's a level of seriousness. I'm, I mentioned this to you. That, that like, you either take it very, very seriously and you know treat it as a survival, or... Uh, you take it too seriously and get so super upset if your plans go to hell that you end up arguing with everybody else and thus you scupper the plans. Or you don't take it seriously at all and, like Roger, just whooping and cheering and just getting sloppy and allowing yourself to get into danger over and over again because you've snapped on the inside and your survival mechanism isn't working. They can't hit that survival biting point in, I'd say, any of the first three. They kind of hit it in land. And I I was very pleasantly surprised by land. Um, There's a couple of characters who can maintain uh, in uh, day, in particular. Uh, And Ben's Ben's pretty good at sort of staying steady. But uh, pretty much everyone in in Dawn, all of the lead characters, just don't have that biting point. (laughs) Biting point. I think part of of the issue there... that was some problem. (laughs) Part of the issue there comes back to this idea of um, are your actors 
<laughs> like your SWAT team, trained professionals who know what they're doing. Um, because nope, the, nope, nope. the difficulty is that if you have everybody behaving in a way that could be explained away by um, basically the, the extreme emotional trauma of this situation has caused everybody to snap. Um, and therefore you've got... Uh, you know, Barbara behaving in a in a catatonic way and not being able to respond to anything and regressing to a child's state. There comes a point where you have to say, is this actress good enough to pull this off? Mm. And in that case, the answer is no. And in the case of Dawn, right, these characters all seem ridiculously wooden and cold and not emotionally engaging with each other or anything around them except in the circumstances where they go completely over the top. Now, is this because they are living in a state of perpetual trauma and this is how they are defending themselves against it? Oh, actually, no, no I don't think acting. these actors can pull it off. That's just bad acting. <laughs> and bad writing because those two things go together. Well, and also the entire movie... He was pretty good about building tension in night. That that was yeah. decently built tension and decently paid off. It's dealt and with Dawn, mostly pretty seriously, apart from that toga party in the garden at that one point. Yeah. Yeah. And that girl's bar. Nothing <laughs> builds anything. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then- I, I think that there's a, a spectrum that you can put zombie movies on tonally, with Zombieland on one end and The Walking Dead on the other. And Dawn doesn't know where it wants to be. Yeah, but then it if you, veers between comedy and this is, yeah. and super serious. Like this is what we said, shocking, isn't it? It, it doesn't seem to um, uh, uh, Romero doesn't seem to have a, a, a solid idea of where he wants the tonal shifts to be and how extreme he wants them to to go from. So that scene where the bikers are wrecking them all, you go from um, a, a what I found quite a chilling scene where you get two of them having pinned down um, a, a black woman uh, who is one of the dead on a bench and they are stripping her of her jewellery. And then it, and then a, a few seconds or minutes later, you've got the guy who voluntarily puts his arm in a blood pressure checking machine <laughs> right at the point where you would think being pinned in place would be the worst possible thing that could happen. Now, I did skip over the really, really gory moments for, of this for Lyra, but she sat and watched Dawn of the Dead with me uh, a while back. And... That was the point where she shouted at the TV screen, Oh, come on! Because <laughs> <laughs> there's no, like, no one in the world wouldn't go, Okay, I see what you've done here. You basically just set up this ridic- particularly gory kill of an obvious moron for me. Thank you, I guess. But did it have to be like this? Really came up with the blood like pressure this. cup uh, design on set. It was sort of... Uh, it was sort of cobbled together because he thought it would look cool mm. and then they wrote a reason to use it. Mm. It's not a reason and just just because it looks cool is not a reason either. But this is the thing, the swing from um, from drama to humour yeah. um, and the fact that you've got an entire subplot in this movie about a woman who is pregnant and terrified of being pregnant yeah. and what is she going to do about that? Yeah. Basically, right, that storyline either gets 
That's Walking Dead level serious. It needs serious. to be a significant part of the plot, mm. or it needs to be not there. Yeah. It's it's Strong almost flavor. it's almost throwaway the amount yeah. of attention that yeah. it gets, and then they segue into and she never resolves some, it. She never like she's just yeah. like I guess I'll keep it. Then. And then they segue into some ridiculously humorous bits. Now, and we kept saying, don't think about it, don't think about it, because you'll never engage with this one if you're thinking about that. But Shaun of the Dead gets that swing between drama oh, and yeah. humor. Oh yeah, pretty oh, yeah. much yeah. perfect. Shaun of the Dead is the perfect perfect zombie movie ultimately because we give a shit about the characters Mm. yeah Mm -hmm. and the characters give a shit about each other and they give a shit about their situation but Dawn of the Dead next time you watch it count the length of time in minutes because I didn't time it between um, Peter having to blow his friend away shoot him because he's turned into a zombie and the custard pie fight Just count the minutes, folks. However long it is, it's not too long enough. Yeah, I checked for you. It's less than eighteen minutes between an hour and forty in and an hour and fifty-seven. The gong has the music. The gong has no place in this movie (laughs) if they're trying to make a serious satirical point about consumerism. Although it's it's perfect and so iconic. Yeah. It's so weird to be able to say that it has no place in this film, and yet it's perfect. Part, yeah, part of the problem with this film is that there is, uh, as Debbie said, no narrative through line. I don't know where we're going with this. Uh, it's a bit like the room in that they, he they doesn't know when it's going to be funny and when it's follow not. them for the rest of their lives, mm. the rest of their natural lives, once they get this all worked out. That's what Kirkman was doing when he came up with Walking Dead. He was like, right, I'm going to do a zombie film, but then, you know, at the point where the camera would fade out and it would go to the end, we'll just carry on following these characters. And he'd just keep sustaining that for year after year after year. Yeah. If there's a narrative through line with, with any of Romero's zombie films, including Dawn, I think it's the the way our our, our reactions to, to nest in a crisis like this which always end up coming out, we seek shelter, and his characters are always seeking shelter, and each of these movies is about where we seek shelter, how we do it, and how that will inevitably fall apart in this situation. You know, if there's a narrative through line, I would argue that that's it for Dawn of the Dead. Um, you know, I can certainly understand how that's, you know, kind of obscured, especially by his uh, his sort of odd choices, let's say, in, in tonal management. Um <laughs> Because I, I will definitely now I I I am a very very big fan of this movie and I actually kind of came to it kind of late um, so I you know I, I didn't have any sort of nostalgic attachment to it but I really one of the things that I appreciate is how it feels so sort of loose and I, I don't want to say matter of fact about the way it treats the zombies but in some ways I feel that almost makes their threat even you know, even more apparent now because there are so many things that we would sh- or should think of as threatening now mm. that we have made modern day, that, that that we have made, you know, just, eh, we just live with it now. Mm. You know, oh, whatever. Um, Biff Tannen getting nuclear codes? Yeah, sure, whatever. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> another, Kurt, another I that, own uh, the nuclear codes! Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, another thing that uh, bugged me about this is that Romero did the cinematography on uh, Night, but in this case, the director of photography is Michael Gornick, mm-hmm. who uh, fluctuates wildly from workaday to fucking awful. <laughs> I, mean, I hate the, the cinematography on this. It is so boring and amateurish. 
it's it, it feels like a lot of the shots are just there to say, hey, by the way, look at this thing that happens. It might as well just zoom in and out for all of the good it does. It, it reminds me of, uh, from SCTV, Monster Horror uh, Chiller Thriller Theater with, with Count Floyd and all the movies they have on that, particularly uh, House of Representatives with Tip O'Neill. There are things that Romero was doing in Night of the Living Dead with his camera work that even though it feels very restricted by budget and technology, make a very sort of stage-bound production feel less stage-bound than Dawn of the Dead does in a lot of ways. A particular shot that I love that Romero uses in Night a lot, and Gornick almost uses once in Dawn, is there is somebody in the foreground, it's a clo- it's a very, very close close-up on their face, but then there's space on one side of the frame and somebody's in the background doing something. It gives depth to the shots. Um, and in this case, everybody's sort of always center frame. Hey, look, this is the thing that's important, just in case you couldn't figure it out. And it comes <laughs> out as boring. There, there are a couple times, though, where they use the, the frame to do, do the thing where here's a thing that's happening off in the corner or in the background out of focus, but you're very obviously supposed to catch it. And, oh, no, this character's in trouble now. Mm. So there, I do think there are times when it, it definitely breaks into very functional. But, yeah, yeah I, I'll agree that it's not nearly as, as visually impressive. Well, I do want to give credit, you know, since there's, there's a lot to pick apart about the acting um, with these, these characters, I, I think that the physical acting, especially for, for Steven, once he turns into a zombie, um, I thought that was amazing. He's the, king of the you know, zombies. That's what I said. Yeah. What's it? Oh, yeah. No, he's got the dead foot and the, like, him as a zombie is brilliant it feels like he sat and like the actor watched all these other zombies zombieing around the whole time and he was like i could probably do that a lot better and like he'd been storing up in his head like <gasps> yeah it's pretty good and uh, <laughs> uh, the irony is the reverse of that is true when he's actually a human when he's actually phys- know that bit when he's trying to like throw off the zombie when they make that rest stop before they get to the mall and like he oh, just yeah. like tries to hit it with a gun and like he's flinging his arms around the place like an animated windmill it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's like it's like imagine the most overblown Shatner fight in the earliest uh, Star Trek, like before even oh, they'd really got into their stride. That he does look yeah. like he's trying to clothesline the guy. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> he's like trying to be like he's seen the Hardy Boys and like I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> Did anybody else catch the uh, homosexual undertones in here? Uh, oh. Maybe a little. <laughs> yeah. Particularly with Peter and his boyfriend, Roger. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then when his boyfriend, Roger, dies, Stephen becomes his new boyfriend. And, he had to kill, and once he has to kill both of his boyfriends, he wants to commit suicide. Uh... Watch whichever one he starts calling brother and how he starts acting towards them. Yeah. yeah. Stephen, Stephen was, was um, kind of a doofus until his boyfriend, Roger, dies. And then suddenly Stephen is... They're, they're best friends now. Yeah. And now Stephen's dead and I'm stuck in a mall full of zombies with nothing but a moody woman. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty much a, a cause for suicide for him. At the end, uh, the, the music that they play is so inappropriate. It goes from like being this sort of like yeah. serious, serious, like, uh, this is the end of the line, to... <laughs> to the rescue! It's Originally it was supposed to have a much darker ending and the happy ending where Peter and Francie get away at... Get away mm-hmm. was thrown in at the last minute. Oh, so for example, they uh, 
Francine, I can't remember what was supposed to happen to Francine, but uh, Peter was supposed to walk into the helicopter blades, mm-hmm. and they made a head for him to do that, and they had nothing else to do with it, so the guy, the guy who got his head blown up... That Frankenstein head? Yeah, that was, that was Peter's uh, makeup head, mm-hmm. and uh, Romero actually cleared the set and just shot it with a shotgun on camera to make it do that. Oh, okay. in, in the in the barrio where there where what's his name goes crazy and just starts shooting people that head that gets oh just, uh, all right, sorry yeah. I was thinking of the guy who walks just just climbs up into the helicopter blades I assume they put that in the, because they were like do you want someone's head to go in a helicopter blades yeah <laughs> <laughs> part of the problem is Romero wanted to do two things with this movie yeah he wanted to do a serious commentary on society. Mm-hmm. And he also wanted to make a gonzo over-the-top yeah. exploitation film. It's his yeah. zombie sandbox. He liked the for the kind of neon color of the blood. He liked that because it felt that it added to the comic booky sense of it. Yeah, and it, it it's bordering on Zardoz levels of satire. At times. <laughs> the irony, rich in irony, and <laughs> most satirical. <laughs> the irony there being that when they did zombies in a comic book, it was The Walking Dog dead. The Walking and Dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Walking Dead. You're thinking of Pet Cemetery too. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. And it was dark and gloomy and terrifying. And depressing. Yeah. My yes. God, is that show depressing. And and as much as I don't like playing, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda in terms of what endings should have or could have been put in, I'd, I'd really like to see a world in which the original ending was put in because all the way back to the beginning of the film where Roger and Peter are the ones confronted with the 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 basement full of the infected that they're you know forced to shoot and then in the moment of the scene it's very obvious that they're both having very strong reactions to it and i think that romero was trying to follow through on that both with the way roger starts to crack up and get too cavalier and too trigger happy and peter gets more and more paranoid and careful you know the the end result of that where peter has to kill those two people after that entire room full of people and then just and that's it for him you know i think that would have been very very strong and i i'd like to see how romero would have tried to handle that you know but he was making a crowd pleaser and it worked because it got 55 million as opposed to 12 million Mm. where they did kill uh the the hero at the end i do wonder though if the intention was always to have francine get away because the, the scene where he's uh, she, where... No, she was supposed to die. Oh, uh-huh. was she? Right. Okay. Because yeah, I was I, I was going to say the to um, the the fact that she very specifically gets taught how to fly the helicopter. Yeah. Uh, or was that retcon to fit with the new ending? No, that was uh, that was in there as well. So much of this movie is just complete and utter bullshit. Uh, we watched this with our roommate, and afterward he's like, you should scan through it and see how much of the movie is just them fucking around. <laughs> and I checked, and a good 32 minutes of this that I could see just by scanning through it was this was just them screwing around doing nothing. Is nothing Tom Savini advanced. on screen? Tick. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I've got uh, a note down here. That simply says, "There's nothing happening, and when things happen, yeah. they're stupid things." Actually, no. Yeah. Sharon said that. You I said did. That. I said you it just... in a very whiny voice. I'm not proud of myself on that one. Yeah. <laughs> it was far too long for its own good. Mm. It was how, how long was this? It Two hours like... and seven minutes. And it's, it's it feels longer. Long... 
It's the longest one he's made, and I really don't think Romero needs to make movies longer than 100 minutes when he's doing this. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, even as someone who really, really likes Dawn of the Dead, mm. you know, I, I actually, as, as goofy as some of these characters act and as dumb as some of the supporting characters are, I mean, the main characters do secure them all very effectively, and it's not until yeah. the bikers come in and screw up their shit that, I mean, even so far as to be like, you know, painting the wall to, to look like the stairwell isn't there. Um, yeah. But yeah, they, there you could cut out easily twenty to thirty minutes of this film, make another, you know, one hundred minute movie. Yeah. We don't need three scenes with them trying on hats. Yeah. We just don't. No. We don't need I quite so much really of them like running hats, up the but... stairs and getting the zombies to come over here. They're running back downstairs and they're moving and then you're like. It's, 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 too much chicanery and the amount of time it takes for Roger to actually get bitten is excruciating to watch when you know it's going to happen like a way uh, way longer it's going to oh god just get bitten already um, part of the problem is that honestly as many stupid mistakes as they made they were too smart they had it. They were it not for the bikers. And again, this is an example of Romero writing himself into a corner. Mm. They could have lived there the rest of their natural lives because they figured it out. And they even got a system working. even when the bikers come flying in there and f- just screwing the place up, the bikers deal with a lot of the zombies. All they had to do was not try to shoot the bikers. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah. Just yeah, let yeah, them. <laughs> Let them come in, yeah. let them take their stuff, that. and then see if you can mop up at the... Like, once they leave, see if you can resecure the place. If you can't, you got the helicopter. But basically, don't try to take out a giant squad of bikers on your own. This ain't a assault on Precinct 13. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This movie could have been... I mean, I looked at it and just boom, boom, boom. You could make... Do what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. Very tight. You know, first act, find them all barricade yourselves in yeah second act you can end you know a solid half an hour of you know getting to know each other you know working out things out yada 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 and then third act is with the bikers but the bikers come in because they you know they see them there they want either want them all or they want to get you know they they want revenge or whatever Mm. And to take this for themselves. Boom, boom, boom. There's a solid movie right there. Three X structure. You've just yeah. encapsulated yeah. it. But in yeah. the end, it's it's longer than Star Wars. <sighs> anyway. Wow. So um that that's the, the, the most celebrated probably my my least appreciated. I'm not I don't like bandying around words like overrated because that implies that whoever's doing the rating is wrong. Um, But this is the most celebrated of the four, and it's the one I got the least out of. Agreed. I think it's it's very important, but I do think it's also important to note that um, several zombie films have surpassed it in a lot of ways, even Romero's, um, even the ones that are considered lesser. I I think Romero um, has actually improved on his own work. Like, I've... I only recently watched Day of the Dead, and even as someone who really likes Dawn of the Dead, I think Day is a better movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So did Romero. <laughs> Day was his favorite yeah. of the trilogy. But it was less popular, and uh, he got quite irate at uh, just the, the fact that audiences seem to want the same thing over and over again. He, he hit a stride with Dawn in terms of delivering people what they wanted. Then when he changed it up, they were like, no, I mean, it's... It is, it's disheartening, ultimately, because you then end up feeling like a one-trick pony and that uh, people don't want to be challenged. Especially when escalation think- is what he tries to do with everyone, and he does it really damn well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think I, I wonder how much of the of the of that money for Dawn was simply people found the gore to be shocking and novel. Mm. I'm and, sure that was part of it. I think part of it also was that um, the satire was probably considered refreshing in the day, whereas today we kind of look at it like, wow, it's that's on the blunt. nose. Yeah. 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 They... But at the time, I, I know Debbie read the uh, Roger Ebert review of Dawn, and he was uh, he was effusive about how much he loved this satire. It was so yeah. clever and interesting. <laughs> I'm like, maybe in 1978, but our storytelling capacity has increased dramatically since then. Oh, yeah. I mean, but, I do think it's important to consider the context of the time, but, I mean, when you look at the broader spectrum, everything in the 1970s was being satirical. And even the towering Inferno, which is like an Irwin Allen schlock blockbuster, yeah. is all about consumerism and bullshit and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Did you start with a Dennis Hopper? Queen, so. It's all consumerism, <laughs> man. Okay, so... Um, I'm smarter, man. I'm smarter. <laughs> yeah, but I'm taller. Uh, <laughs> First came the night, then came the dawn. Now comes the most eagerly awaited day in horror film history. George A. Romero's Day of the Dead. We've been punished by the creator. We visited a curse. The few remaining, their only hope of survival is to find a cure. You're wasting time trying to define what's happening. But the odds are against them. We're in the minority now. Something like 400,000 to one by my calculations. And so is Captain Rhodes. Anybody else have any questions about the way things are going to run around here from now on? Their one chance is Bub. It's working on instinct. A deep, dark, primordial instinct. But their time is running out. They can be fooled, don't you see? They can be tricked into being good little girls and boys. Same way we were tricked into it. I promised some reward to come. But when the tricks wouldn't work... They're learning. They're actually learning. Their world fell apart. So, uh, Day of the Dead from 1985, seven years later. Another thing that's really impressive is that um, the first one was 1968, second one, 1978? Yes. Uh, so that's ten years, and then seven more years to, f- to finish your trilogy. This is, of course, in the days before they had trilogies. You know, they, yeah. the Back to the Future 3 was like one of the first times when they were like, what, we're going to do a one, and then a two and a three, and we're done. And that is it. That's our round trilogy and we are telling one story that works on its own and then three that work together brilliantly whereas this i mean it's they 
there was not a big arc over the three. It doesn't, there's not a single recurring character unless Tom Savini's zombie that turns up for one moment in Land of the Dead Blades is also, is actually the resurrected zombie of his uh, unnamed biker in uh, Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. Uh, Unless that's Um, the case, there aren't any uh, uh, recurring characters. As far as trilogies go, though, keep in mind this is two years after Return of the Jedi. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but that's what I mean. When he, when he started in in sixty eight, he wasn't like, right, I'm going to do three zombie films, and I'm going to do it over seventeen years. <laughs> you just was, lull everybody into a false sense of security. That was not the plan. <laughs> and I'm kind of amazed. Like since the first one cost that little, why didn't he just make a second one? Because he made twelve million on that first one. Possibly just because of all the whole copyright thing you mentioned. Yep. Also. Uh... As far as the copyright goes, the movie itself was in the public domain, mm-hmm. but the name was copyrighted, which is why it is suddenly, which is why the series suddenly became of the dead instead of of the living dead. Gotcha. And the next living dead movie we had was Return of the Living Dead, which was which very established different. that zombies eat brains. Yeah, that's I've seen that one. That's more of a sort of a black comedy. Sharon and I both recently saw Return of the Living Dead again on Netflix, and it was a laugh riot. Everyone who's in it seems to be having a whale of a time. Uh, but wasn't that but, down but, to the fact that, like the um, the the other guy he wrote uh, and put together Night of the Living Dead with split and went off and did his own series? Yeah, and that was that. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, but uh, again, like you know, he made Dawn seven years before this and made fifty-five million dollars off of a one point five. Like, I don't get why they weren't just like, dude, Dawn of the Dead three. To whatever, like, like straight afterwards, that by 1979, 1980, you know, I, I don't get why this wasn't much quicker out. My theory is that we're, we're looking at the, the Hollywood transitioning into blockbuster family entertainment period yeah, yeah. Um, in, the, in the early 80s because it's post-Star Wars, but pre the kind of horror explosion that happened with Freddy and Jason and... And, I mean, Tom Savini was a big figure in the Friday the 13th movie, so it could just be that there wasn't as big a studio outlet for him to work on for just a couple, three years because everyone was chasing Star Wars until they were like, oh, wait. And also, the older teenagers will want to watch, you know, the bloody stuff, so let's let's get this guy to make another zombie movie. Yeah. Well, in another one, I think, in if they had gone that direction another one of those would have been another exploitation film. Which, I think, by 1980, we're starting to... I mean, 70s is mainly the heyday of exploitation. Hmm. And I think, to a lot of of degree, that kind of was... The the taste for that was kind of dying off, I think. Well, the the mid-80s would have been the the time of the video nasty, when it was like, you know, you, you chuck out something inexpensive horror... And then people buy it on VHS, and um, it would be it would be more popular on home video than it would be in the the, the brief cinema run. Um, and I think it's I think it's telling that while he was able to make Day of the Dead, he was still not able to make it as big or as expensive as he had originally wanted. Hmm. Like he was working with a much con- more condensed sort of idea than he had originally cooked up. Yeah. Well, this Land is- of the Dead was originally Day of, was what uh, Day of the Dead was supposed to be. Ah. This is... And the military was supposed to be like in the caves, and the scientists were supposed to be in the city on top. Right. This is uh, three point five million dollars, 
uh, which is twice what uh, Dawn of the Dead uh, cost, and it made 34 million, which is considerably less than uh, Dawn, but still 10 times your budget. You know, again, I don't yeah. get why they didn't make a fourth one pretty soon after. Just it's uh, like another it, 10 years, uh, 85, 20 years. Yeah, 20 years. And I honestly think Day of the Dead might be his most effective use of the bottle episode structure that he always uses for his zombie movies. Because I mean, every one of them is a bottle episode. You know, you've got yeah. house, mall, bunker, city. I think this really uses that to its fullest effect. Even though a lot of the personal interactions are, you know, everyone shouting at 11, it's still very obviously constructed as to how these personalities are bouncing off of each other in this very cramped, claustrophobic mm. set. Yeah. To borrow a Doctor, Who's fr- a Doctor Who phrase, it's a base under siege story every time. Mm. The Actually, yeah, what I mentioned earlier about the survival instincts being uh, you know, not hitting that biting point, this is the one where survival instincts are skewed to the point where all everyone's doing is shouting at each other because everyone has their own idea about how to run things. And eventually, you know, the, the, the lead military guy, General Who Gives a Fuck, is, <laughs> is clearly out of his gourd. He's like, shoot this woman! Rhodes. Rhodes. Captain Rhodes. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah it just, uh, he's, he's clearly a terrible leader at that point, and the only reason Oops. that no one's shot him in the back yet is that they haven't had the opportunity. Mm. I think the issue well, he wasn't only at that point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think he was only the leader. I mean, he wasn't supposed to be the leader. They they have major whatever his name was. You know, he's just died when when Captain Rhodes takes over. Oh, major issues. The, yeah, the, yeah. The only a uh, major Cooper, I think. Is, yeah, Cooper. Major yes. Cooper, yeah. And, and so that it's just the chain of command that's put Rhodes in charge. And it, were it not for, you know, his obvious toady in, in you know, steel, then I, I don't think he would have the pull to. And he definitely doesn't have the temperament for command. So it's, it's just a very tragic accident that even put him there in the first place. Mm. But he's still very much a an exact. I mean, everyone is very exaggerated in Day of the Dead. It's very, very pulp and 80s in that way. Uh, one thing I will say is that I liked, uh, I very much liked the beginning of this one. This one immediately got me. I loved the um, the dream sequence at the beginning with the wall and everything. That was well done. It was well shot. Um, although I will say I was watching the opening credits, and I will tell you my uh, note on this one. I saw a director of photography. I'm like, my note is Gornick is back. Fuck. Because <laughs> <laughs> we have Michael Gornick again on cinematography. I'm like, oh man. But he, he said he seemed to have improved in the seven years where he has gone from what the fuck are you doing to, okay, this is at least, it's not inspired, but it at least tells the story. So I will give him credit for getting it a little bit better. And the movie in general has a better, it has a definite better narrative through line than Dawn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the, I like the setting at the beginning, uh, mostly because that was filmed in Fort Myers and Sanibel Island. And my family and I used to go there on vacation occasionally when I was growing up. And it's a wonderful place. And it looks kind of exactly like that to this day. Um, and also that, uh, the newspaper flying up with the dead walk. Mm-hmm. I thought that was just a great shot, a great little thing. I, it was little things that made me like this movie more, I think. Well, everyone likes the newspaper, the dead walk thing, because that's been sort of a running visual homage and how many zombie things since then? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Basically, everyone has used either a newspaper or a bulletin board saying exactly that or a riff on that in zombie fiction. 
Although, uh, one one of the secondary headlines that I like even better is Man Bites Man. <laughs> <laughs> the, that was actually one of the headlines on there. The film, it says here, was given a very limited release. Uh, the fact that it managed to make ten times its budget on a very limited release, I'm assuming that's because it made up a lot on video. Uh... Apparently, extras were paid $1 for their services and given a hat that read, I was a zombie in Day of the Dead. <laughs> True story. Though they were obliged not to wear those, I'm assuming, <laughs> during filming. Yeah. But, I mean, that's, that's a good idea, basically. You know, just the, the idea of, like, you know, let's get extras who actually give a shit about this. Because one of the things that I've heard directors complain about in commentaries is wrangling extras who don't seem to know what the hell they're doing. If you get people who are like, oh, God, I love Dawn of the Dead. Like, you know, I would love to be a zombie. You'll notice that the actual zombie acting is a cut above in this third one. Yes. Oh, yeah. certainly. I, I can't imagine Ricky Gervais's character from Extras being in this. <laughs> uh, he doesn't care enough. Yeah. All of these people really were in it. Oh, yeah. Into it. And, and uh, Bob is amazing. Oh, yeah. But, like, Bob's oh, physical Bob, performance uh, in this and Big Daddy in the, in the next one. Yeah, the, the, the suddenly it, the, it, there's a switch around. And they become the heroes of this world because it's like, look, you know what? Humans, they're on the way out, manifestly. Uh, it falls to the zombies who possess something more of an intelligence and leadership qualities and and a, like a, a focus to them to suddenly give us the hero characters we want who aren't going to be eaten by zombies. Very specifically, I think, as well, um, it's, it's not just humans are on the way out it's men are on the way out one mm. of the things that gets uh, looked at quite closely in this or at least the way I interpreted it is the is the construct of masculinity and the idea that there are several men in this who compress their emotional reaction to this situation and the the natural fear and anger and frustration that would would you know people would be feeling in this circumstance and they don't have any means of expressing it and in one way or another it eventually wrecks them and the notable exceptions to this happening to the characters are uh, when Sarah has a complete um, moment of having to totally compartmentalise her emotional reaction when uh, Miguel gets bitten and she has to cut off his arm and cauterise the wound and in the moment she is completely emotionally rigid there is nothing there hmm. she's sweating, you can see how how uh, she's holding herself emotionally still in order to be able to deal with this situation and then once the moment has passed she breaks down and um, hugs John and cries. And basically all of that emotional build-up is released and that enables her to get through that situation without going completely off the deep end. And Bub, who has an emotional response, um, in as much as a zombie can have an emotional response, mm. to the whole situation of the, the person that thus far he has perceived as the closest thing he's got to a father being killed. And he expresses that and um, and enacts a fairly natural and understandable revenge for that. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing about this that really kind of jumped to mind is I thought back to the people imploring, you have to be logical, you have to be logical. Mm. And that's what Dummies! Dr. Logan is. Dummies! Sorry. Yeah, that's it, yeah. But that's what Dr. Logan is. He is 
logical. Um, he understands that, for example, uh, the dead soldiers that he's feeding to Bub are meats. They're dead. There's nothing, and Rhodes, is, Rhodes and the soldiers' kind of attachment to them ultimately ends up being their downfall mm. because they're attached to meats, meat that could be used to train these zombies to, you know, be docile and even contributing members of society. Yeah, the Nick Frost at the end of Shaun of the Dead. Mm. Mm. However, Logan's um, detachment from humanity that enables him to do these things does eventually become appalling. Good point, yes. It does. The the What Bub and Big Daddy both represent is the, the zombies becoming more empathetic than the human characters that they're working against, whether it's the soldiers um, being able to, you know, casually execute their own kind. I mean, yes... Um, Rhodes is is protective of his people, but he just shoots another human being in the head for no good reason, and mm. you know has no remorse about that whatsoever because he has no ownership over that person. Um, whereas, you know, Bub's reaction to 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 Logan, and and then Big Daddy's reaction to any of the zombies that he's having to either watch get killed or having to put out of their misery, uh, is very much played against. Uh, say Kaufman's very dismissive attitude towards human life. Yeah, and, and also. So it's, it's, oh, go ahead. No, no, no. You go. Well, it's it's just the the triumph of of empathy across living or dead lines over, um, over the the sort of unempathetic views of, of toxic masculinity and the way that represses emotions. Mm, absolutely. And even when there is a, uh, as you say, a logical and practical and rational um, purpose for that, uh, that suppression and that detachment, it ultimately is not, um, it's not an acceptable form of expressing humanity that that we feel comfortable with and dr logan yes he he does um have hit this this relationship with bub but to a degree that's just as objectifying as he treats the the soldiers whose flesh he is feeding to bub or the other zombies who he's dissected in order to to work out what makes them tick he sees bub as an experiment not as his child whereas bub does have that sort of paternal view of him well, and Bub, you never, ever see Bub attack anyone to eat them. You never see him go after, as a zombie, yeah, you see him eating the meat that presumably formerly was a human, but you never want to see him attack any living human for the purpose of feeding. He goes for revenge. He shoots people. He shoots people. Yeah. But he, you know, he's... In many ways, he's more humane than he's more humane than Doctor Logan. Yeah, or Rhodes. Or, Certainly well, not the Rhodes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, one thing, and this is just the comic book nerd in me. I saw that there was a guy named Logan and a guy named Bub, and I immediately thought of Wolverine. <laughs> yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. I didn't even realize that. They're on the same. Change. They're on the same screen in the introductory credits. Exactly. And I was like, what? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, I'm glad I wasn't the only one who saw that. Like, Logan and Bub. Oh. oh.
Wow. Okay, so um. Oh, the the one character I think is is really oddly uh, paced and kind of is the the odd one out in this film is Miguel because uh, he's clearly going to pieces at the beginning and you feel sorry for him rightly so because he's he's you know traumatized and suffering from P- PTSD and and currently not even post traumatic it's mid traumatic it's right there he's he's buggered. And um, she tries to help him repeatedly, and he responds by lashing out, "No, fuck you!" And uh, you know it's, uh, that that's that's kind of makes it more tragic. But at the same time, you, you hope that there could be some redemption for him. But then he basically just he deliberately lets in the zombies, and then lies down to let them kill him in the most painful way possible, and also lets them into the facility where they can eat everyone left alive, including his former companions. I was like, at that fuck point, this that, guy! He knew that his companions at that point were already outside of the gates, so they wouldn't... No zombie... The only people left in the facility were the mm. military people. Oh, right. So there was nothing ah, that he could I do. didn't get that. Yeah, he, they the, were he, already outside already the gone. gate when they... Uh, what's called? Mm. When he managed to escape. And he assumed they were already dead. Mm. Yeah, so this was him getting revenge. Revenge is a big motif in this one, be it Miguel or Bob, or even uh, one of the stories that John was talking about from back home who talks about revenge. Yeah, the, the, the scene specifically where he's allowing them to kill him, um, I took as, as him, it's sort of a form of self-flagellation Penance. for turning traitor against yeah. the, the soldiers that he mm. feels he now has to kill for killing his friends. On the other hand, and and while I you know while I think it I think it works, I do think Miguel is sort of a a bum note overall in the movie, either because he's not incredibly well written or because he's perhaps not as well acted as the others. I think the character could have been a little bit more than he ended up being. I think he's the weak link mm. uh, in in that particular film, which I think overall is is the strongest of the the three originals and has probably my favorite characters of the of the three originals mm. yeah i, I think I'm in- uh, one thing that oh, sharon you go ahead I, I think i'm inclined to agree as far as uh, miguel's character he is introduced in in what i um well not his original introduction but his his character development initially is very strong and i actually thought his response to the whole the trauma of the situation um and his his lashing out when sarah tries to help him was actually quite consistent with the trauma he's experienced and with his um, his internal responses to that and having got that strong start it kind of bled away and didn't go anywhere uh, one thing that uh, about him, the scene with him freaking out that I quite like, Laurie Cardile um, actually insisted that he really smack her because he, she wanted it to look as real as possible. So he was actually, the actor was hitting the other actor. Mm. Um, and I think that actually contributed to her performance and particularly to his performance. I think it helped him seem more out of sorts with it because the actor was out of sorts because he didn't want to hit, um, he didn't want to hit his co-star. Yeah, I think I mean that that bit works. I just think they don't they don't follow up on it, and he gets. No, I think the character gets shortchanged, which yeah. you know this this might be a, a bit where maybe they could have added a couple minutes to Romero's one hundred minute running time. Yeah. yeah. Um, one thing about that though that I also like about this is that there is a point in the movie where you have time to relax and learn about these characters when Sarah goes to hang out with John and uh, what was it, McDermott was the other pilots. 
Um, uh, and they just I think it's McDermott, yeah. Yeah, and they just hang out and talk for a little bit. This is probably the first time in this trilogy that Romero has effectively used a downtime that hasn't gotten boring and overlong. Mm. It just I think it, it helps that it's just the one scene. Yeah, uh, that does help a lot. Um, I also think that this movie is the one with the best um, makeup and effects, and part that's of that not even not even debatable. It's yeah, part of it is they got Greg Nicotero for this one on top of Tom Savini. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, wow. The brain with no face, that, I loved that. That looked so good. Mm-hmm. And you can see it's still trying to eat with what's left of its bottom jaw, mm. but it has no head. Mm-hmm. It's that just a brain hooked up to wires. That reminded me of, uh, didn't Nishon do something similar in uh, Walking Dead, just cutting off the lower jaws of a pair of zombies and their hands so that she could, they could not present a threat to her, but... Uh, could be used as, as basically just to deter other zombies. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. There's like an action figure you can get of, of Michonne with with the zombies that have just the tongues going down and and no lower jaw. Yeah. Nice. Gruesome. Mm. I like yeah. the one with uh, the effect the here with the uh, the zombie who Logan specifically says that he's detached all of its internal organs so it, its digestive system is not connected and, and yet, yet it, it continues eats. to eat. Yeah. And then when it sits up, everything just falls out of its ribcage. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love Tom Savini as an effects master and this mm. is kind of maybe his best work ever? Which yeah. is... Which is saying something because the man has done some amazing work. Mm. But even in the even you know when you when you look at the fact that it's very overblown in eighties, it's still just great craftsmanship in terms of what they're doing with the zombie makeup. One thing that kind of got me though, all right, so the military people are basically racist to a man, with the exception of Miguel, and they're racist against Miguel. But Super what got racist. yeah, one thing that one thing that bugged me, and it's a stupid thing, is. Yellow is not traditionally the color associated with Hispanics. I'm. Why do you keep doing that? Are you, not only are you racist, you're particularly stupid racists. Like what is yeah, wrong? Yeah, they can't. They yeah, can't hey, British piece of shit. They can't <laughs> yeah. decide to trying to call him, you know, a, a racist slur or cowardly or again, sure a cavitous Mexican. <laughs> Sorry, it's it's uh, bigotry. Is bigotry is about the dumbest fucking thing in the world. But uh, erroneous bigotry is like, well, you're not even doing your homework here. <laughs> Put some effort into it, sir. Yeah. Um, but at the very if you're going to be racist, are... then do it right. <laughs> <laughs> at the very least, they are played for laughs in a lot of cases. My favorite being the uh, golf cart chase scene mm-hmm. when Rose is escaping the golf cart. That just looks so ridiculous. <laughs> It does, but it's it's actually also a really nice character beat for Steel because they're, they're given just enough humanity, just, like, not much, but just enough for you to kind of, you know, see them as humans. And so Rhodes being so protective of his men, and, like, he's just as horrified as we are that Logan is feeding his men to the zombies. He it, it reacts very much in outside the, the bounds, but still... And then he leaves his own people. You're like, oh, okay, it's definitely okay for everything that happens to you to happen to you right now. Mm. Yeah. There's something that um, that Logan remarks, actually, that uh, that I think fits in with that, the idea that the reason all of these uh, military people have gone over the edge is that they are bearing a, a significant amount of guilt for having not been able to protect people from the zombies in the first place. Because ultimately, what's the purpose of a military if it's not there to protect the people? Well, sure. 
Yeah, it's this thing that all of our all of our technology and military industrial might is supposed to, you know, these are just people with no real weapons or tools, and yet we can't stop them. Visually, this one has a lot more um, callbacks to earlier parts, and they set things up visually. For example, when Rhodes dies, he opens the door, and there's that wall of zombie hands that we saw at in Sarah's dream at the beginning. Mm. It's just that wall of zombie hands. Sarah's dream starts out with a calendar that has no dates on it, but is entirely marked off. They are out of time. Mm. At the end of the movie, she has a calendar with plenty of room. They have gained more time. Yeah, I love that. I also love the fact that the uh, the surviving characters are the ones who are the most even-tempered, the most practical, the most apt to get along, the most able to communicate with one another. They don't even rub it in everybody else's faces. They just kind of quietly get on with things. Mm-hmm. It's everyone else who's screaming and pointing guns and, and, and succumbing to their own savagery. And they have maintained best that balance that we talked about where you've got savagery at one end and uh, rationality at the other and humanity being somewhere in the middle and they're also the ones most liable to help each other out because they're very deliberate scenes where every single one of those characters is coming to the aid of the other throughout the movie Mm, yeah Uh in the end what will save mankind is cooperation yep and get that off a beer matt yeah (laughs) get a sex to cold Um, and i think we can all agree that uh Bob saluting Rhodes at the end was fucking awesome. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, my yes. God. What yeah. a kiss. I, well, I, I cheered. cheered. I, I was cheered. punching the air. I was punching the yeah. air. That <laughs> yes. was great. It's just like with a dry cold wit like that, I could be an action zombie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the, uh, the 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 character, the performance for Bob, the whole um, engaging with music, and the the one uh, bum note in that is just a missed opportunity. Uh, when the uh, the commander who gives a fuck shoots Doctor Frankenstein, that's something that Bob should have witnessed. He should have seen that. We should have got the emotional beat and the. <laughs> moment and that should have really registered and then had the captain sneer at him not kill bub and then walk off and then that way bub could be like right you're mine sonny jim for that but uh that we, he, he, he finds out later out. yeah, yeah. We, we, he so finds out later and it doesn't necessarily back. seem like he would immediately tie up with that guy it yeah he does like have to make could... a leap of logic mm. yeah it almost feels like that could have been a deleted scene yeah because that seems like Otherwise, well, yeah, why would Bub know that Rhodes was the one that killed Logan? Yeah. Yeah, other than he just hates Rhodes and might as well blame him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and he doesn't seem to have the comprehension to understand that Rhodes has looked into the abyss and the abyss has looked back and <laughs> he is now incredibly dangerous and needs to be put down. Mama, you've been bad. Anything else on Day of the Dead? Which actually has kind of a... Uh, like, if you're just going to take it as the original trilogy, it has kind of a, an upbeat ending. Yeah, it does. I think it's kind of a shame that this sort of gets a bum rap because it's, you know, when everyone talks about George Romero's original three movies, it's like, yeah, Night of the Living Dead, yeah, Dawn of the Dead, eh, Day of the Dead. And, yeah. you know, I think yeah. being I think being unfavorably compared to its predecessors um, is very unfair because I, I think it's actually maybe my favorite of either all of them, definitely of his original three. Hmm. Yeah. 
It's my favorite, and that part of that is that it's my first zombie movie. I had just started working at Blockbuster when I saw this. Um, it was around Halloween, and my cousin and my next-door neighbor, who I was friends with, we were all kind of horror fans, but we were slasher horror fans because we grew up in the 80s. And I decided, what the hell? It's a zombie movie. We didn't have uh, day- we didn't have Night of the Living Dead at my Blockbuster and Dawn of the Dead, I didn't know that there was a different... I didn't know they were connected. I didn't know which one came first. I just grabbed Day of the Dead. I'm like, okay, it's a zombie movie. And I loved it. I loved it then, and I, I'm glad that it still holds up. Because a lot of stuff I loved from them really kind of sucks. Hmm. They were going to call Land of the Dead Twilight of the Dead, but I think there's yep. probably a book or two that uh, they decided against that. Same as... Um, <laughs> Uh, Guillermo del Toro's animated film Book of Life was originally going to be called Day of the Dead, but then they realized that even though Day of the Dead in uh, Mexico is is a huge, huge deal, calling it Day of the Dead would just confuse it with Day of the Dead. Oh, my God. Hmm? Did you say it was the 1st of November? Yep. Day, the, yep. The, the Day of the yep. Dead. Yep. Right. The calendar that is all crossed off at the beginning is October. The calendar that Sarah is looking at at the end is November. Oh my God! (laughs) It's November first, yeah, confirmed. It's either Halloween on that day, depending Mm -hmm. on when she crosses off her days, or it's the day right after Halloween. Begins October thirty first, ends Ends November November second. So yeah, yeah, it's rather more than a day, but Mm. uh, yeah, it's a whole thing. And I love the actual imagery of that. And folks, check out Book of Life. It's a really good little animated film. Yes. Yes. Oh, that was great. True that. Okay. Um, just one tiny other thing that I really liked about um, about Day, and that's the fact that you do get this speculation about how the, the zombie infection thing might actually work. Right. And I, I really liked the idea that, he, uh, that what Logan is looking at is basically that everything has ceased to function except the limbic brain. Yeah. Mm. And that people are basically pushing forward on pure survival instinct and nothing more. There is nothing else that appears to be connected or functioning apart from that part of the brain that drives the uh, the survival eat-move operation. One, one more thing that I definitely want to say about this is yet another movie where they know how to use a gas pump. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which is good for that. Yeah, good for that. Yeah, just keep yeah. showing. I was watching this. And I'm like, yeah, just keep showing us that these people know how gas pumps work. I, I that do makes wonder me happy that if in that world. Yeah, he's doing it on purpose now. It's like, no, no, no I've learned. See, gas pump. We know how to use it now. Yeah, they also have a cute little uh, verbal callback about how the shopping malls are all closed. Yes. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Oh, speaking of shopping malls, uh, the one bit that I forgot to mention about Dawn of the Dead, which for some reason always tickles me, is the attention all shoppers. If you have a sweet tooth, we have a special treat for you. If your purchases in the next half hour amount to $5 or more, we'll give you a bag of hard candy free for the kiddies or enjoy yourself. So hurry and do your shopping. It's just, it's so, ac- I, I, I swear to God, that was already on the system of the mall. They were like, can we use this? That was Romero's wife. They're, oh, brilliant. Well, wow. she did a splendid job of sounding. At the time, I think they met on set and eventually got married. But yeah. Like, you know, well, what a voice. I got to marry this lady. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
I, Talk I, to me about Howard Candy. Yeah, uh, she she nailed the satire of it then because she sounded very accurate and like you know teeth grindingly slow uh, in her, her delivery and also bored out of her wits. That kind of nails the whole you are stuck in a place where people wander around in a daze. It's almost Ghostbusters. What do you want? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so that's uh, night. Dawn and day. Uh, then twenty years elapsed, and we were left with the land of the dead in two thousand and five. The world as we know it. They must be destroyed. Is no more. Cities are under siege. The land of the living has become. Feeding on human flesh. The land of the dead. If these creatures ever develop the power to think, to reason. In one last outpost. It was my ingenuity that took an old world and made it into something new. We have survived. Rivers protect us on two sides. I put up the fences to make it safe. And these fences go all the way across? Both ways. But if the living can adapt. Things are changing. These guys are not just walking. So can the dead. It's like they're pretending to be alive. Mindless walking corpses. They'll never get across the river. This is probably the least appreciated of uh, uh, Romero's films, in, in that it came out, like I said before, at a time of, of uh, just entering zombie saturation. Possibly, I attribute this to like a threefold uh, occurrence, uh, which is Shaun of the Dead came out, 28 Days Later came out, and Dawn of the Dead came out, the, the remake. So basically, 28 Days Later and Dawn of the Dead are... Okay, now zombies are fast and terrifying, and everything like you you thought about zombies is now different. So just chuck those old slow zombies out the door, and those old slow zombies would not go out the door. They came back, and and basically, even though fast zombies are around, there's still plenty of room for the slow zombie. And uh, but also, Shaun of the Dead uh, sent up zombies so superbly that you pretty much couldn't do a straight zombie film ever again. And yet they did. And Land of the Dead came out afterwards and is actually a really, really good straight zombie film. And is in fact... Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright in it. It does. In in, uh, little Blink and You'll Miss It cameos. This is my favourite of the four by a country mile. Uh, I do. I I, do. I didn't uh, expect that to be the case. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I remember uh, really enjoying Day of the Dead and um, not, you know, in context, not loving uh, Land of the Dead uh, up against, say, uh, Shaun of the Dead. You know, it's, it's definitely as good as, you know, if not better than uh, the Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead. There's... The thing is that Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, while it is crass and there's that bit with the baby, which is just, no, what were you thinking? Uh, with with that bit, for me, just that flesh crawlingly awful. It has enough great moments to, as far as I'm concerned, outstrip all three of the original uh, Romero Dead trilogy. Um, but this has its own share of iconic moments, and uh, it's got some superb zombie makeup. Uh, it it's it turns the tables and starts the zombies uh, as protagonists in their own right, whilst also being antagonists. Um, and it kind of it, it plays with the idea of um, 
of, of class warfare. In a way that I kind of wish the the the, the ragtag impoverished were in it more because it would have made the point more succinctly that the, the the rich who have no actual defenses against the zombies you know hold up in their tower uh you know versus people who clearly just when the zombies turned up just went to ground and survived it's a little bit of a missed opportunity there but the the, the parallels are, are still pretty clear in terms of, of what this is saying about american society in the uh, early 21st century uh, and uh, yeah, it's a, it is a solid, epic zombie film in a way that I wish World War Z had been. Yeah. It's written. It's well acted. Mm-hmm. It has a solid three-act structure. It does tension beautifully. It sets up things in the beginning that pay off in the end mm-hmm. or throughout. It's, it's blackly humorous without descending into farce. Mm. And yeah, it, has, it manages tone masterfully. And it has just enough that is unexpected. Because mm. I think that, that would have been the danger with this one, because I would say the distinction between what I like about Day and what I like about Land is that Day has more individual elements that I really like, but Land puts those pieces together far better. Um, but there is a fair bit in land that was in that could have been in danger of just becoming um pretty tropey and cliched um but they they weave that through with just enough didn't see that coming or that was an unusual way of doing that particular setup um and the whole thing with with big daddy and the fact that his character turns up at the very beginning and then just keeps popping up every now and again until you kind of build the, to this crescendo of, okay, now we're following him because the interesting stuff is going down where he is. Um, that, I, I just think the way land is put together is um, is very impressive. It gives, uh, Big Daddy actually gives the movie, I think, a ticking clock. It gives something that is letting us know that there's a climax coming without having to just throw in a climax like in previous films. Um, we know that Big Daddy is on his way and that when Big Daddy gets there, shit's going down. Mm. This is going to happen. Uh, we don't need to throw in a random biker gang or have Miguel let zombies into the facility to make this happen. We know what's going on, so it manages the tension well because the closer he gets, the closer we are to a climax. Also, one thing that I like about Big Daddy... I like the whole concept of it, but I liked the concept really well also two years later with 28 Weeks Later Mm. with uh, Robert Carlyle's uh, Infected in that one. Mm. And that's the the thing I liked probably most about 28 Weeks Later. So seeing this in here, I'm like, oh, wow, there's that concept done first. And it's also really well done. I Uh, would argue concept done first and better because while... Yeah, oh, yes. Because while, while Big Daddy... I mean, it... It gets more time to to sort of get established in what he's doing and how he's learning it. Also, because Romero is able to use the fact that we know about zombies and we know other zombie movies have happened, he doesn't have to explain things, just show that it's a little bit later on. And so it's very easy for him to be like, okay, now this is how things have progressed, as opposed to trying to have things progress all in just the space of one film. Yeah. So just the fact that we we're seeing the band play with their band instruments, you know, because that's a leftover thing that they remember, 
and then how that progresses to zombies using tools offensively and um, in an escalating sort of way as opposed to just incidentally like it was in Night of the Living Dead. You know, I think that's just incredibly effective. Yeah. Side note, the band was trying to play the gonk. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the tuba part, the tambourine part from the gonk. Of course. <laughs> One of my favorite moments in there is that little moment. It's so short, but it's, it's I, I don't know, Big Daddy and his crew are maybe halfway there, and they're attacking those soldiers. Mm-hmm. And the the cheerleader zombie, you know, Big Daddy had handed her a machine gun. And, you know, she goes to hit the guy with it, and he stops her. He's like, no, 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 no. There's, there's better things very, you could do with this. Exactly. Yeah. He very, And it very almost tenderly takes it and, you know, turns it around and demonstrates to her how how to use it. And I'm like, wow, he's a surprisingly good leader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's Big Daddy had really good moments and moments that I had trouble connecting on. For example, when they see these zombies hanging upside down for target practice with targets on them, mm. and he sort of no, he does that. <laughs> I had trouble. I had trouble connecting with that part because, well, you know, if they if those were regular people, you would be in there eating them. So I'm having trouble uh, feeling. You know, man's inhumanity to zombie here. On the other hand, scenes like that with the machine gun really kind of made me connect with him. Well, yeah. I, I don't take that scene, the scene you're talking about, as man's humanity to zombie. I take that as Big Daddy sees... It, and it was played over the top, admittedly. Yeah. But I, I think that what they were going for there was he sees these as his people. He does not see the humans as his people. They're separate. But these are... You hurt my people. Yeah, I understand that. It's more a matter of if we start going with that, then we have to examine the hypocrisy of how dare you commit atrocities. That's our job. <laughs> We're supposed to be eating you, and you're and you have the audacity to what, break the Geneva Conventions. <laughs> well, no, no one's saying that they're they, they have a certain amount of sentience, but I, I think it's it's. Yeah, they're on the the level of animals, basically. Yeah, fair. I, I think I think yes, that is a distinction that in in ways they maybe dolphins because they can be assholes. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, they I mean, it, their own more than the humans. Do. They've they've yeah. recovered some of their their previous comprehension, but it's not it, it's nowhere near coming back all the way yet. Yeah. I feel yeah. like it should be a Futurama joke where you have a zombie uh, philosophizing. <laughs> A zombie yeah. philosopher. Yeah, he's, got, he's got glasses and a British accent, and or or even better, Peter Boyle at the end of uh, Young Frankenstein, even. Mm. Yeah. How, yeah. How do you feel? Just be in a British accent. If you cut a be zombie. <laughs> do we not? James Bachelor? Anyone? Do we not yeah. bleed? Well, no, we don't. But that's besides the point. Yeah. <laughs> And then if challenged too much on it, he simply devours the person doing the challenging. Well, it, exactly. If, if you look at it from the perspective of a zombie's place in the food chain, we don't feel any empathy towards the way we treat our food. I mean, just look at the way humans store cattle and chickens and pigs and treat them. But Some of and, us and, do. You know, so, oh, well, some, okay, yeah. yes. Not, Big Daddy would be one of those bleeding heart liberals. So much for the tolerant left zombies. 
Well, I mean, he doesn't so much care about his food source, but how his food source treats his fellow zombies. Mm, mm. I mean, you know, we, we don't have a whole lot of empathy for, for animals that, that we depend on for food as a species, and yeah, therefore if neither does Big Daddy. If cows suddenly start torturing people, I suppose, yeah, I would be a little upset, too. Yeah, I would go... <laughs> Oh, uh, also with Dead Reckoning, obviously this is not something that necessarily inspired uh, my writing, but I was immediately like, well, that would be Steelborn then, if uh, if you folks have read Arlington. Yeah. It's uh, uh-huh. not so much Steamheart, because far more offensive and uh, far more heavily armoured, but uh, but definitely Tesla's creation. Um, I like immediately clocked Dennis Hopper here, sitting grimly at the top of his tower, uh, and, you know, he's an orange real estate magnate who just... You know, <laughs> Treats people uh, as cattle and sort of, sort of moves them in and out, uh, you know, dispassionately. And I was like, okay, apparently that his performance was based on Donald Rumsfeld, but his look and his position is pure Trump. Oh yeah, he's got the red power tie. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and he's he's literally orange. His skin is orange. So yeah, the, uh, I'm not sure the zombie skin is also green. miscolored. So his satisfying demise at the uh, uh, hands of uh, both Big Daddy and uh, John Leguizamo uh, felt yeah. in- way too brief. I wanted him to get, like, bitten to shit. The, the, the suffering that those guys go through at the end of Land of the Dead, especially um, Captain Who Gives a Fuck, who he's like, I hope you choke on them when they're pulling away his legs. And like that, yeah. like, they, that's Savini and Nicotero going fucking mental with their makeup and just having the yeah. people torn to shreds. To shreds, you say? <laughs> <laughs> and the thing, I, one thing I will say for it, though, is that I liked that um, what's uh, Kaufman's end wrapped up both Cholo and Big Daddy's story. It was a mm. really satisfying ending for mm. both characters without them walking over each other. Yeah. So, and yet another gas pump being used. <laughs> To get a gas being used, but it was. Yeah, oh, yeah. It, is it, that correctly or incorrectly? I'm not sure. It was Donald. It's correctly for the purpose. It, it plays like it's incorrectly. Like it's a very well well structured scene because you're not sure who's going to kill this guy, but you know this guy's days are numbered, and you see both Cholo and Big Daddy are coming for him, and then when Big Daddy recreates his former behavior from his former life, you're like, oh. Is, is that it? Is that all he was really trying to do now that he's... Nope, he brought fire. It, mm-hmm. It's a very good reveal. Fire make hurt. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and uh, the introduction... The, uh, introduction. The introduction of Cholo in that scene makes you sort of forget about the... Uh, about the gas in the car for a little while. Because it was one of those... I just sort of said, oh, I guess they're not going to do anything with that. And I was ready to make fun of it for not doing anything with that. And then it comes back. Well, and I wonder, I wonder too, if, and I don't know, does anyone know what this was rated? Uh, Uh, Hold on. It was rated R, but there's an unrated director's cut, which is what I watched. So I don't know what was put back in versus. Uh, It was uh, the fact that in the R-rated version, there were people, there were CG uh, and blue screened things obscuring particularly horrible moments that were then removed easily later to to fully reveal them. 
which is what I wonder about, you know, you saying there's not, there's, you know, they don't have as much gore and whatnot, which was my wondering if they were trying to go for either an R instead of an NC-17 in the U.S. or a PG-13 instead of an R, because that's the way things have been trending in horror in the last, you know, 10, 15 years. Oh, I don't know which version you guys saw, but that this version made us go, oh! Like, we saw of, the unrated. But yeah, of all yeah. the... Um, of of all four films, like this was the one that just made us all just go, oh, he's got an arm off, more than any of the other ones. Mm. <laughs> the bit where they wishbone that person's hand. Oh, uh, and the bit yeah. with the, they oh, the skin off the guy's face. Yeah. 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 And the and the, the, there's a bit where you've got loads of um, of the dead. I wasn't going to mention it. No, I know, but I'll be brave. I'll talk about oh, it. Oh god. Um, yeah. She nearly the, threw up. The the clawing at the side of a. A trailer, and basically you just see all these hands and the fingernails bending back and breaking mm. off, and that is a thing that yeah. I can't. Basically, I saw that I had to kind of curl my hands into fists and keep checking that my fingernails were still there because oh god, it's horrible. I'm feel yes, it's there yep. again now. Okay, oh, sorry, awful. you said it. I, know. I wasn't gonna. No. <laughs> <clears throat> and that the. the, the uh, the, there's that skateboarding kid I mentioned earlier who starts off at night with a skateboard. Well, it's zombie-infested city, and you're yeah, they're just asking for it at that point. Then he's like, no, 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 I'm on my own in a uh, abandoned harbour utility shed, vulnerable on all sides. Uh, I'm going to have a cigarette. And he has a cigarette to make sure that the zombies can smell him. And then, uh, just to make absolutely sure, he puts on some headphones and that, like, they, they extend that death like, they keep adding a new thing every time you cut back to him and then like he gets completely eviscerated yeah you put some shades way. on too kid yeah basically like uh, the <laughs> only other thing he could do is co- cover himself in bright flashing lights and charge at the zombies backwards <laughs> <laughs> Wear a red yeah, shirt. But, but really Alex yeah. I mean yeah. that thing that he's asking for it come on man that's that's mm. victim shaming right there come on oh <laughs> I was going to say uh, earlier the, the the fact that uh, um, Trump is uh, sorry is it, what's his actual name Kaufman oh, is uh, uh, dispatched um, with calculated glee by uh, uh, an African American and a uh, Hispanic character. Um, yeah, good. Uh-huh. Yeah. I was you know as uh, Cholo was uh, making his way slowly towards Kaufman, I was like, I haven't got time to build a wall. <laughs> that that kid with the skateboard and the headphones, though, when um, uh, Cholo says to him something about there's there's three things that everybody has to do alone: you're born, you die, and then well, we all know what the third thing is. And all I could think of was what be bait. I have no idea what you're talking about at this point. Uh, also, the, uh, the the lady in this is Asia Argento, daughter of Dario Argento, the man who did the, a lot of the music in Door of the Dead. As obviously he's linked to this series and spent most of his career doing editing. Yeah, but spent most of his career um, making Italian films wherein women are horribly mutilated. And uh, yeah, Asia Argento was also in Triple X. And there is a again a biting point between screaming useless wife and total badass. So like between Barbara in uh, the original Night of the Living Dead and Michonne in 
Walking Dead. The lady in um, Day of the Dead is actually pretty competent as well, but she's not. Sarah. Yeah, she, Sarah's not super take charge. But um, H.R. Argento in this is at least, although she starts off basically dressed as a sex worker and is flung into a pit of zombies, which would you would imagine in the horror movie parlance, it's like, well, she's a sex worker, therefore she must be punished. It, yeah. Also, she has a line of backstory which is completely nonsensical. She says basically she wanted to join the army, but somebody decided that she would make a better hooker. Who? Who decided <laughs> this? That Who ridiculous. decided that they needed one less person on the wall with a gun in their hand, but in actual fact, this somebody who was volunteering to do that very difficult job would be better off just, you know, nudged aside and, and told to, to go streetwalk. Mm-hmm. Side note, in more recent times, Aja Argento has come forward with accounts of some fairly horrible stuff that Harvey Weinstein did to her. That takes guts and in response her home country of Italy rejected her with one Italian newspaper Libro running a scathing piece under the headline first they put out and then they whine there's a deep ugliness to the way that women are treated in almost any industry you could name in comparison to men and that's reflected in fiction sometimes more sharply in some stories than others that way she can make more money for Kaufman I mean it's sort of feels like, I mean, maybe it wasn't him directly, but the, the system that he sort of put in place is very, you know, it's very easy to take advantage of that and victimize the people who are seen as either lower class or, I mean, they the class warfare isn't explored a whole lot, but it's definitely touched upon. And one of the guys who says, I wouldn't be welcome in there mm. is specifically Cholo. Mm. And, yeah. and so, when you know. When he tries, he isn't. Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's, and it's obviously, you know, whoever made that decision, it's definitely proven wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, while she's not, you know, Michelle Rodriguez, she's definitely a very competent person. And, and I really like the reversal of showing that here's, here's a woman in skimpy clothing. She's almost certainly going to die. No, no, she's not going out easy. And now the movie's going to give her some clothes and a weapon and let, you know, and let a character actually be a character. Yeah, she reminded me a bit of uh, Melina from um, Total Recall, actually. Yeah. Mm. yeah. But yeah, the, the, the Fiddler's Green setup, the actual um, yeah. uh, the, the, the luxury that they've got going on there, and people are eating in bistros, is really dangerous in a zombie yeah. environment. It left them all these pink, quivering little husks of human beings completely ill-prepared for the realities of the world. It's it's the delusion of um, of luxury society now. The the idea that you know oh, I could just sort of indulge in this for the rest of my life and uh, I don't have to deal with anything else. Which uh, I do love that it was called Fiddler's Green though. Fiddler's Green is halfway on the road to hell, and it's a respite on the way to hell. Ah, uh, in the song. More to the point, Fiddler's Green is also the place where pirates go when they die. And what is Dead Reckoning other than a landbound pirate ship, including having cannons? Yeah. Also, speaking of pirates, that bit where they, uh, moon, the moonlit walk as the zombies come out of the waters, very per- Curse of the Black Pearl. It specifically was designed as a reference Carnival of Souls. What's Carnival of Souls? Uh, it's a movie from, I think, 1964, a horror movie. Um, cla- kind of a classic horror movie, uh, sort of a proto-zombie film. It's uh, It was kind of on the way to Night of the Living Dead. Mm. It's really... a 
it, it's restricted by its time period in many respects, but as far as just being a well-shot uh, film, it's actually quite brilliant in its own way. I highly recommend it. Okay. Uh, but the, uh, the the Fiddler's Green thing is, is perfectly summed up in that, that woman in the penthouse where her husband's hanging there and, and she's like, what's going on? And then Jonah's like, hold on, I'm just going to get this spiky thing and just make sure he's in No, I don't know, I don't understand. It's like, how long have zombies been shuffling the earth for you to not understand the exact process of what's going on right here? Uh, uh, also, how selfish do you have to be to kill yourself knowing that you're going to turn into a zombie? Yeah, and endanger your wife. So, yeah. and, and son, it would appear as well. Well, And, and I, everyone I, turns. It's not just whether you're bit, which which is something that Romero made very explicit from from his earlier movies and and is not always taken as zombie canon, but no matter how you die in a Romero movie, you're coming back. Oh, that's something that was, uh, ended up being co-opted into Walking Dead. I did not know that. And no one ever yeah. stated it explicitly in the films, but uh, but yeah. <sighs> I think it, it just, it's highlighting the arrogance and the naivete of the, of the super rich in mm. the movie. Mm. Is that I think, I think they've come however long, 10 years, or however long it's been at the point of this story, I think those people have become so insulated from, <sighs> from you know, the real world that they, they genuinely don't believe it. I think to them, you know, zombies are fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the nature of privilege, isn't it? If you can keep the bad on the other side of the fence from you, you can pretend it's not there. <laughs> Yeah. It actually reminds me of one of my favorite uh, DS9 episodes called Past Tense, which aired in 1994 and sounds astoundingly appropriate to 2016, where essentially all the poor people have been, in the past, have been put in these zones that they're supposed to be waiting to get work, and in reality it's just basically a slum that they're not allowed to leave because rich people don't want to look at them. There's, oh, there's one more bit. It's such a small little silly thing to, to take exception to. And I will clearly, I will say this is nitpicking. But uh, there's a point where the guy who plays Matt Reynolds in LA Confidential, the kid that Jack ends up feeling really guilty about, um, is it Simon Baker? Yeah. Uh, handsome young guy. Um, he. he but yeah. like points out the best way to take out the zombies is just with slow and methodical shots and he holds up his two forty fives and just like he shoots one and then the other with a different one and it's like no 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 you holster one of them and you slowly double tap them with one gun because that way you can yeah. aim better you know the the, the two gun thing because all the guys wants to be the killer there's, it's, there's no reason to use two guns at once unless they're coming right at you and you've got to dispense bullets really really quickly that being said, um, again, we watched this with our roommate, and he made some joke about uh, using revolvers as opposed to a bullet with a gun with more bullets. I'm like, well, yes, but revolvers are less likely to jam. Yeah, they're more reliable. Yeah. yeah. So I gotta give him credit for that. It's yeah, it's le- yeah, it's fewer bullets, but you're it's not your gun's gonna not, not gonna stop working in the middle of getting out of a horde. More effective. Yeah. That's another one from the zombie survival guide. Also, this this film cost uh, 19 million and made 46 million, which is you know profitable enough. They're getting less yeah. profitable by the year, but uh, and uh, more expensive. Oh, actually, no. This is where it stopped, and then they like we could feasibly carry on and do the other two, but it's already at two and a half hours. 
the start yeah. stage. Uh, but uh, but yeah, this is where they had to slash the budget to uh, to, to get back to to carry on afterwards. But um, yeah. and this is possibly a good reason why they don't make huge budget R-rated zombie films much. Uh, one thing that really works about this, I think, is that our two, for lack of a better term, main characters, Riley and Cholo, mm-hmm. are both fairly morally ambiguous, with Riley being slightly a better person and Cholo being slightly more evil. Mm. But ultimately, I can understand both of their motivations. I don't hate Cholo. I don't think that he is an evil person. I think that he makes some poor decisions, but... You know, otherwise I could still like him. Riley, I don't love. He's selfish and a jerk, and more than happy to screw over the people that he that he isn't immediately friends with. But he ultimately makes the right decisions when it comes to crunch time. Yeah, they they're both allowed to make poor decisions, and then they're both given a moment where it's like, okay, what decision are you going to make? They're you know they're both selfish. They're both established as, as selfish people. You know, from the like, they literally both say on the same night, this is the last night, I'm done, I'm, I'm looking out for me now. Um, yeah. But I've, I've th- I've looked, I'm like, are you two days from retirement as well? Huh. <laughs> this is my first thought when they both said that. But but they, again, you know, they, they're both allowed to make a decision as to how they're going to, you know, whether they're going to be defined by their selfishness or not. And they both choose to not be defined by their selfishness. In very different ways. One of them in a very destructive way, the other in a very sort of liberating way. In terms of budget, at $19 million, this is one-tenth the budget of the World War Z movie at $190 million. And ten times the movie. And ten times the movie. Uh, (laughs) Now, interestingly, though, World War Z, with all that marketing welly behind it, made five forty. Uh, versus the 46 million. So there is maybe something to be said for the whole PG-13 rated movies do better than R-rated movies. If you're going to measure those two. Cough, Cough, Deadpool, Cough. (laughs) I mean, it would have been quite possible to do World War Z as a PG-13 and make it really, really good as well. Uh, But uh, they, they declined to do that. They got well. Let's get the uh, director of Quantum of Solace on. That's that's a really good idea. Mm. Well, look, look. They the started with J. Michael Straczynski, and they moved on to Damon Lindelof. Yeah. What does that yeah. tell us about well, the direction although, they wanted to go in? Uh, uh, David Fincher's currently uh, doing on board for the second one, so maybe redemption. Oh yeah. Oh, there we go. Is it possible that Fincher can go right? There's slow zombies again, and now we're going to go back to the books and. Now it's going to be, you know, re-embracing the manif- manifold, multi-textured themes of the book rather than just this Brad Pitt hero worship picture. You know, at the beginning of the movie, it's Brad Pitt waking up and all of that was, it was a dream. was all a dream. And we're going to start again. <laughs> and then he gets eaten by slow zombies. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for coming in, Brad. Bye. Like he got into a bidding war with Leo DiCaprio to, to actually have World War Z. He's like, I must have World War Z. And then once I've got World War Z, it's all about me. There are ten movies which I would say are at least better than Dawn of the Dead. Uh, you know, in terms of the, the fact that Dawn of the Dead gets uh, venerated as a, uh, a, a classic. In reverse order of uh, my personal favourite of quality, The Serpent and the Rainbow. Anyone ever seen that one? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's the Wes Craven one. Yeah, it's a Wes Craven, and it's all about the Haiti zombie um, uh, idea, sort of going back to the very beginning of the of, of being enslaved by a witch doctor rather than it just being about the living dead. It's There are some really unnerving moments in that. And, uh, yeah, I recommend you folks uh, check that one out. Dawn of the Dead 2004, the uh, Zack Snyder one, I actually consider to be uh, superior to the, uh, the, uh, the Romero version. Warm Bodies, the uh, zombie love story with... Uh, That's a favorite of mine. Nicholas Holt, yes. I really enjoyed that movie. It's quite lovely. Very underrated. Yeah, Very underrated. it starts off with... Uh, which, which is the song that basically... Um... I want to know what love is. If your question is, are we going to be playing I Want to Know What Love Is by Foreigner on every subsequent podcast for School of Movies, yeah, probably. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, that sounds right. Uh, also, Braindead, the Peter Jackson zombie film. You could probably throw in Bad Taste as well, but uh, Braindead's my personal favourite, and that's Dead Alive Dead in Alive America. In the US. Yeah, yeah. That's that's friggin' hilarious. <laughs> don't, don't watch it while you're eating dinner. Though. Oh, yeah, Christ, no. don't watch it while you're eating custard. Um, oh. Everyone that, knows what I'm talking don't about. Don't watch. Got, oh, that got me way worse than any of the gore later in the film. <laughs> that scene, I was just like, oh. Between oh. that and the the scene with the porridge in um, the Golden Child, I was really oh, yeah. averse to squishy things. That kind of pudding throughout. What? My no pudding. Uh, a, a, a lovely family accessible, uh, but uh, probably too too dark for if you've got very very little kids. Uh, Paranorman from uh, Leica, the uh, creators of uh, Kubo and the Two Strings. Uh, recent one that came out in the UK. I don't know how it's fared in America, but it did nowhere near enough uh, business for what it's actually worth in the UK. The girl with all the gifts. I've, I've heard just, good things. <laughs> I've heard good things. It. I don't believe it came out in the States yet. No, we're looking forward to it. Yeah. I just read the book because of actually Film Brain's review mm-hmm. of the movie. And the book, I loved the book. I just finished it this morning. This morning, yeah. Yeah, I just finished mm. it this morning. It's excellent. It's, I've, I've read the synopsis of the book. It's very, um, it's very faithful to the book. All they really seem to take out, the junkers... Because the, they, they, it, it, that just com- complicates things. They just pared it down to the uh, the humans and the uh, the dead, um, or the infected. And uh, the the confluence of events at the end is different, but it's got the same spirit to it. Okay, I, I'm I'm oh yeah, I'm excited. I want to see it. I'm like, when is it coming to the U.S.? Get it here! Shit, what seriously? Watch you guys. If you folks as well have seen another one on the list here, twenty eight days later, it feels like it could have taken place in that world. Only that world mutated with the infection from the Last of Us. Ah, okay. Ah. Yeah. Uh, on the uh, top two, we've already mentioned Shaun of the Dead and Zombieland. Just brilliant zombie comedies and I think really for me it's it's got to be like a really deadly serious zombie film where I like they thought about everything in the way that World War Z does or it's got to be a comedy which where I really love it because uh, and I love the characters and it makes me laugh but that doesn't rule out if it's a comedy thinking about absolutely every detail because if it's somewhere in between if it's sort of trying to do both and not really mastering either of them then Dawn of the Dead? Yeah, it's it's, (laughs) going to end up being Dawn of the Dead. Uh, To a degree, Land of the Dead 
does manage the balancing act quite well, but uh, it's it's no way near as brilliant as, say, a really good World War Z movie could have been, or as good as Shaun of the Dead or Zombieland in terms of it being a comedy. One more thing I want to point out that I didn't realise until the edit, but if you've listened to the music that's been playing in the background for Land of the Dead, it reminded me of Super Metroid. So take a listen to the soundtrack, it's really quite moody and uh, quirky and... I mean, all of them have got great soundtracks, as you've heard. And they're very, all very much of their time. So in the uh, Night of the Living Dead, you got this kind of like, Oh, B-movie, it came from outer space! And then in Dawn of the Dead, you've got this kind of, you know, experimental 70s, we don't know how to do tone. And then in Day of the Dead, you've got this kind of 80s synth like possibly a bit too rockin' for a zombie movie, but it's like, you know, again, trying to be moody for its day. And then with Land, you've got kind of atmosphere rather than melody. It's a really great collection of sounds. It's interesting that that Dawn of the Dead gets so much credit. I I do want to give it a lot of credit, but in some ways, like, Day of the Dead has been more influential in the the genre, even though it kind of gets lost in the the shuffle, if you will. But I'd be really large for that one. Oh. Well, I mean, if you look at, I mean, Alex mentioned 28 Days Later. The ending of 28 Days Later and the ending of, of Day of the Dead are not the same. Similar. Yeah. I, and yeah. And then if you, if anyone has played The Last of Us, I don't want to get too spoilery. The Last of Us's ending is practically a deliberate inversion of Day of the Dead, mm-hmm. where you're playing a human version of Buck. Only that makes sense. The hero. Yeah. So you you kind of reminded me of that with uh with your putting Twenty Eight Days Later on the list, which yeah, yeah, yeah I, I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah. Twenty Eight Days Later is what I immediately thought of when I saw Rhodes. I thought of uh, Chris Eccleston. Yeah, yeah. They're they're basically the same character, only Chris Eccleston is a little bit more refined. You can believe refined. he's yeah. sane for a while longer. Mm. Yeah. yeah, he's a better actor. Yeah, well, I was yeah, going to say that, but that sounded mean. Well, I don't know. I, I really liked um, the guy who played Rhodes. I liked him in Dawn of the Dead. He was the cop who was looking for a cigarette. Oh, nice. Some people have suggested he may be the same character, and, you know, he joined the military and rose to the rank of captain, and then this happened. Okay, so, I mean, that, that that's going to pretty much round it up. As um, four movies go... Romero has sort of gone down in history as sort of one of the godfathers in the genre and his name uh, has been bandied around when you say zombie and Romero the the two sort of fit neatly together so I'd say he's he's done extremely well with his life so whatever 2017 does to the man uh, he's, he's made his mark already it killed him if there's any of these four you haven't seen it's probably worth seeing all four of them just to really establish the arc of the, uh, the of the series, and if you want to, then carry on and watch Survival and Diary. That's that is your prerogative. <laughs> yeah, definitely don't stop after Dawn, even though that's kind of like supposed to be where the goodness stops. No, yeah. don't stop there. Keep no, going. No. Fallacy. Because yeah. day that's probably the day bottom. Land, of it. I mean, I'm not even sure if I'd, I. I mean, it, it might be, but you know. Our popular culture is like, you know, kind of trained at this point to say, you know, that that's the high water mark. Definitely keep going because day and land are well worth your time. That's where the ju- juicy goodness is at. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. If you want to get to the meat of the. Okay. I'm ah, ah. Right. 
Okay, uh, how about you guys chew out uh, where we can find you online if you, you want to uh, check out your other projects? Um, you can find me at sequentially-yours.com. That's my main show. It's all about comic books and giving close readings. I'm also part of another comic group called Infinity Arc, which you can find on YouTube, just searching for Infinity Arc. Um, and you can read my written stuff at eclipsepopculture.com. I'm on Twitter uh, at best at 8300 i am working on a youtube show myself it's not ready with with our wedding and everything that's kind of kind of been put off but congratulations again folks <laughs> thank you thank, thank you, you so much thank you you can uh, well you can find me on twitter at blc agnew uh, where my my named handle is jack burton me um but i also co-host the day one podcast uh, that does the movies uh, Cinema Central, where we pick movies that go well together thematically. Um, we are going to be spinning up some some Halloween stuff a little bit later, but our Watchmen and The Incredibles podcast is going to be going up in the next few days, and you can also find a nice solid backlog there on SoundCloud or iTunes if you just search for Day One Podcast. And you can also go to dayonepatch.com, where there's a message board set up, and you can find the podcasts there for download as well. All right. Okay. Uh, this, this, by the way, folks, will be going out like January or February or October. Uh, 2016 will have finally claimed its last victim, and 2017, the new killer will be uh, on the warpath, <laughs> robbing us of our heroes left, right, and center, mm-hmm. and leaving Trump fucking alive. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway. So we'll also know the outcome of that particular little uh, shouting match. The shouting match I was referring to was the election. It did not end well. And uh, we're going to end on uh, a little ditty by uh, a band uh, named Aerosmith, uh, which uh, ties in with Land of the Dead, and it's called Eat the Rich. <laughs> so, <Nice>. I've been <laughs> so I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And... Some fun, and I don't go first above all the rich folks who get rude. Cause-
Go get 